Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. Richard, I did a little something different this week. I couldn't find a clever song or even a band name, really, that I thought went with our episode. So I just took some music right out of the score from The Omen. That was called The Altar. I believe it's from the climax scene of The Omen, music composed by Jerry Goldsmith. So it's like the power of Christ compelled you to play that music. Exactly, exactly. A little uh, loss of self-control uh, when uh, the dog came into the room and the raven flew by. Welcome, everybody, to the Classic Horrors Club podcast. This is our 29th meeting. Can you believe that? It doesn't seem like it. I mean, we're, you know, we're closing. Is, is 30, is, a, is that a big anniversary? I, I don't know. Sure. Hey, I think every episode's an anniversary. Absolutely. Happy 29th anniversary. <laughs> yes, you too, Although Richard. technically isn't there. I think we, we might be at... 30 because we did like a half episode i think sure sure so and next month our 100th episode yeah exactly i'm jeff owens i'm from the classic horrors.club website and across the table from me is my good friend hello this is richard <laughs> chamberlain you threw me for a second <laughs> you can find me at just that no we should be should we be doing that already sure. yes absolutely yeah this boy this is starting off good <laughs> Yes, you can find me at kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com, even though WordPress links don't work on Facebook anymore. You've been having a problem with that. Yes. And, and so our WordPress sites are still out there. You're just not going to find links on Facebook because they've determined that WordPress is a bad site because of some hacking and scamming and stuff that's been going on. So I know that's, that's been a problem for you. And it's not that I haven't worked on it, but the customer service level at Facebook is just, oh, it's so impeccable. <laughs> they are so responsive and so helpful. So that's yes, this is all my fault because <laughs> they have been so helpful with this issue. It's one of those things where Facebook is the only thing out there, really. I mean, there's other social medias, but it is like there's not direct competition for Facebook. I know there's been talk of people wanting to start up sites and stuff, but I think Facebook is so entrenched in everybody's lives that you're really going to have to create the next level for people to want to be able to switch and go over. I, there's just, I, I don't think you'd have a hard time convincing some people to switch over. Facebook is is what it is, and there's issues with it, and algorithms preventing you from seeing things that some people post, and um, celebrities like Stephen Amell has had issues getting his site out there, or his uh, page out there, because they determine it's advertising when it's not really advertising. You know, maybe someday 
Facebook will give you a call back and you can get the issue fixed. Yeah, well, you know, Stephen, he called me the other day to ask about that. And uh, I said, <laughs> well, Stephen, I'm dealing with a, a problem of my own right now. I can't seem to post individual synopsis to each movie we're talking about. I like to repeat one of them <laughs> and the one for the worst of the three movies. So, uh, sorry, can I call you back, buddy? <laughs> So if, uh, if, if you thought that you were hearing uh, Deja Vu, can you hear Deja Vu? Um, Conga was the movie we really wanted to stress in last month's, ish, you know, last month's episode. So uh, hopefully you, you know completely the plot of Conga inside and out uh, to the tones of my melodious voice. Well, this week, though, this month, we are talking about, if you didn't figure it out, the Omen trilogy. So that is The Omen from 1976, Damien, Omen 2 from 1978, and The Final Conflict from 1981. And Richard, I call it just The Final Conflict because that's what it was on its original release. It was not Omen 3, Final Conflict. And Especially after watching all three, I kind of like separating that and not calling it Omen 3. That's that's a good point. I think that it's retroactively been referred to as Omen 3 because the next film, Omen 4, had Omen 4 in the title. I actually have original, and I was going to bring them out, original newspaper clippings of The Final Conflict. Because by that time period, I was cutting out movie advertisements. So I actually have some... I remember vividly Bob Curtright, who was the movie reviewer in, at the Wichita Eagle in Wichita. He'd give movies a four-star rating. And I remember vividly he gave The Final Conflict one star. So a very generous movie critic then. A very then. generous <laughs> movie critic. That, that's a precursor of what's to come when we get to the, the third film in the Omen trilogy. Because I think you and I are on the same page. So that it was a, 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 It's a distant third. Definitely, we're going to start at the top and and roll a little bit downhill. But I don't know. There's there's interesting things to say about it for sure. Before we get to that, let's uh, take care of some old business. We've got roll call for some new members. We have Joe Pavlansky, John Robison, and Bob Penny. We welcome all three of you to our Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club Podcast. Welcome, welcome, one and all. We don't have any audio feedback this time. Uh, We're recording a little earlier than usual. I don't think people have had time. I was going to say, you've still got two weeks to record something and send it in, but they're not going to hear that (laughs) until this is posted. So so we'll be, by the time you hear this, you you will probably seen some notices on Facebook, uh, notifying you that if you still want to call in and leave some uh, feedback, we will try to include it as Jeff is working through this episode. The downside is we may not be able to comment on it. Depending on when we get it in, may it maybe we just save it for next week's or next month's episode, and we'll just have a uh, maybe a slightly bigger episode. Although, you know, when we talk about next month's episode, it's going to be different in itself. And I think giving everyone a heads up on next month's episode hopefully encourage some people to call in with their thoughts. Uh, when we get to that, I've got. You know, we'll, we'll talk about that. But maybe next month's episode will have more feedback and a little less conversation because we're doing things a little different next month. But that's, you'll find that out later. Yes. But nevertheless, we're getting some great conversations in the Facebook group. And we really had some help with old business this week. Uh, Joe Carson, who is a member, he answered several of the notes I had to research for this episode. So thanks for participating, Joe. I didn't have to do that research. Uh, Let me just share what you shared with us. 
we wonder why Alan Adler, who was credited for at least partially writing Forbidden Planet, uh, did that and then did Giant Behemoth and then nothing. We found out that he, like we've talked about so many other people in that era, was a victim of the second Red Scare and he was blacklisted from the film industry. So therefore, he wasn't working for a year, few years, plus he died prematurely on January 30th, 1964. So that explains uh, Alan Adler and his short-lived career in Hollywood. That seemed, at one point, very promising. Very interesting. He also explained the proper way to pronounce Michael Goff. I have just done that. Michael Goff. Michael Goff. G-O-U-G-H. Yeah. Alfred, and also in Conga. Conga? Did we cover that last time? I'm not sure. I don't know. You know, I, we did, but I think we left out the synopsis, so people probably didn't know what it was we about. We may need to include that yes. in this episode, just in case people missed <laughs> That's it. That's all we ought to do on the third break, is replay that. We That's should. Funny. <laughs> Joe also told us that the commentary track for Giant Behemoth is truly awful, as you heard. We talked about that last time, but he did mention that the commentators are some big names, far from unknown. Dennis Murin and Phil Tippett. I know both those names. They're visual effects masters. They've won several Oscars for movies like Jurassic Park, Return of the Jedi, E.T., and Terminator 2. So my follow-up question is then, we talked about how that was sort of a mystery science type make fun of the movie. So we're saying that those big-name people would speak like that about the movie? Is that Does I that guess. ring a bell for you? I, I guess, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. We also had a comment from Anthony Walker, who said that uh, he knows not everyone likes Mystery Science Theater, speaking of Mystery Science Theater, but the Gorgo episode has one of his favorite skits, a one-act play called Waiting for Gorgo. Have you ever watched that? I have not. I have watched it in the past. I didn't have a chance to watch it again, but it is, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's, I think you can find it on YouTube, okay. just on its own, Waiting for Gorgo. It's a little short. Um, but yeah, that is great, Anthony. Thanks for reminding us of that. The other question I had that I was just curious, we talked about how Queen of Blood was going to be on TCM and it was under the banner of TCM Select. And I wondered if there was anything special. It was actually on last night. I recorded it, got up this morning, ready to to find out and share with everyone. Nothing. Credit start, no introduction, nothing at the end. So I don't know why. I don't know what they choose to put that label on TCM Select. But I guess a movie that's on three in the morning, you're probably not going to find any of those uh, bonus features that you might they want. Normally, yeah, they normally don't. In the, you know, they used to do, what was it called? The Friday night cult thing that they used to do that Rob Zombie hosted for a while. They would have segments for both movies, as I recall. Hmm. It would be like one o'clock and 2.30 or 3. So, yeah, but if it's just a movie on its own, yeah, you're not going to see... Uh, what's his name? Uh, ben Mankiewicz or any of the other? Uh, I can't remember the new people they've got doing it. I, I keep missing Robert Osborne because he just had an authority when he came out, kind of like um, an, an AMC. What was it, Dorian? I can't remember his name. Gray? No, 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 no. Yeah, as Dorian was his last name. I can see his face. Jim Dorian, Frank Dorian, Tim Dorian. I people out there know what I'm talking about. He was the precursor to Robert Osborne. Okay. Back in the early, early days of AMC, I'm talking late 1980s, he did the same thing. He was the one that introduced the concept of coming out 
and in, in talking about the movies, the classic films before the movies would play, which I, it was not an original concept. I mean, there had been local you know hosts for films for a long time, but as far as cable networks go, he originated it, and then Robert Osborne popularized it when they created Turner Classic Movies, and then that kind of forced AMC eventually to go a different route when Turner Classics became much more popular with cable networks because hmm. they would often be coerced into playing Turner Classic movies and choosing. I worked cable back in the 90s, and Turner was very powerful. They're like, if you want to keep TBS and you want to keep CNN, you got to carry Turner Classic movies, and it has to be exclusive, and you can't carry AMC. So the company I worked for could not carry AMC hmm. because they wanted to carry Turner Classic movies, and... Ted Turner and, and Turner Broadcasting would, would force cable networks or cable systems to choose. little wow. known fact behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, we didn't get any voicemails, but I do want to give our number that people can call and leave us a voicemail, 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. A couple other Facebook group messages that don't have to do with questions we had, but... Um, our friend Heinz, somebody, I never... We I have not yet determined how he says it. Yes, there's name, so a Heinz. character in the name that I don't know, but Heinz said he was looking forward to our Britain Under Siege episode. On paper, it still sounds weird. Giant monsters in Britain. As weird as a giant puppet dragon in Copenhagen. <laughs> and then Rob Kelly said that the first movie he saw in the theater was The Omen, and he was five years old. See, I mean, I, I hear these stories of, of, of people seeing, like, The Exorcist and all these scary movies, and, like, I couldn't even get my parents to let me go see these movies when I was a teenager. I had to be <laughs> 17 before they would let me go to an R-rated movie. I'd watch them on, on HBO after they were asleep, but parents taking five-year-olds to see The Omen, I, part of me is envious, and as the, the older part of me says, you know, what were they thinking? The nightmares that would ensue, I would think, I would imagine. I saw it in the theater on its original run. I was not quite... The, oh, that means Rob is older than me. I found someone that's a little <laughs> bit older than me. Now, I was a young teenager, and my mom took me to see it. I, I remember it... I, I, you know, it must have been TV advertising in those days that just made me want to see these movies. I don't know how else, you know, pre-internet you would even know that they were coming out, but she took me to see it, and I, I told her just the other day that that's what I was watching. We were going to record about it, and she remembered it. She said that was a good one. Magazines would cover upcoming films. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, you'd have, like, Starlog would talk about upcoming science fiction films, and so uh, there were horror mags out th back then that would cover. Famous Monsters was still around yeah. in the 70s. Well, I, I don't, don't recall them covering something like The Omen, no. though, but they may have. You know, I'm thinking Fangoria didn't start until the 80s, right? 80s or 90s? Yeah, late, uh, early 80s. Yeah, early 80s. Early to mid 80s. Yeah. Uh, there's an old business for next time. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, some of it you would just, uh, movie magazines or whatever, a lot of it, yeah, you, you wouldn't know what was coming out until you saw the poster in the lobby of your theater or saw a trailer or again, like you said, saw it on television. So I, as a kid, I don't remember planning a year ahead of when to see the next 
you know, movie like we know now, you know, two or three years in advance release date. I kind of miss that from childhood, you know, that that sense of wonder that the summer is starting and that's about all you know. You know, this, Christmas seems a gazillion light years off and you don't even know what's coming out at Christmas time, but you know what's coming out in the next two or three months. I miss those days. Yeah. Anything else you can think of in old business? No, I cannot. All right, slate's clean. We're getting ready to start new right after this. For generations, the Thorns have been a family of tremendous wealth, position, and power. The perfect marriage of Ambassador Robert Thorne and his wife Catherine was fulfilled by the birth of their son, Damien. And then, when the child was five years old, something terrible happened. And then it happened again. Was it an accident? Was it murder? Was it a coincidence? Or was it an omen? Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. 20th Century Fox presents a film of psychological suspense about an occurrence of earth-shaking importance. Gregory Peck, Lee Remick, The Omen. I was at the hospital, Mr. Thorne, the night your son was born. I saw its mother. I saw its mother. I have fears. I've said fears. What kind of fears? Its mother, Mr. Thorne. You saw my wife. Its mother. What is it you're trying to say? His mother was a... This is not a human child. There are those who will die for him. There are those who will kill for him. Who is he? What does he want? Where did he come from? And can he be stopped? Gregory Peck. Lee Remick. is the truth. Where does it end? You have been warned. If something frightens you today, think about it. It may be the omen. Fearing that the news their son died during childbirth would devastate his wife, Robert Thorne unknowingly makes a deal with the devil and becomes parent to the Antichrist. With the face of a cherub and the heart of a demon, Damien's arrival into the world creates a string of bizarre accidents that lead Thorne, who has become ambassador to Great Britain, and Jennings, a photographer whose life depends on it, to solve a mystery of biblical proportions. So the 1970s was a decade in which we were dealing with a lot of demon storylines, possessions, the Antichrist theme would pop up in, in, in a few movies, None as, as to the extreme of The Omen. I mean, The Omen was, the, the I think, the granddaddy of Antichrist films. It was a unique decade, but we were also entering the latter part of the 70s when this particular theme was just about to run its course. And I think that The Omen certainly gave the impression that this was a, a, 
uh, a genre that was going to be going for a long time. But within just two years, things were going to change when the second film came out. I love The Omen. It's a classic. And there's so much good in this movie, and I think that's part of the problem is that it makes some of the inadequacies of the second or third film really shine when you look at everything that The Omen had from the cast to the director to the writer to the music to the excessive amount of Star Trek and Doctor Who connections. <laughs> and really what we get from this is that Star Trek and Doctor Who just makes everything a little bit better. Do you agree? Sure. I'm not going to argue with you. Yeah, I want to repeat that I was going to start out the very same way that this was the era, era of the occult and even Amityville Horror, which we've talked about. And I think that's, what, three years after this. So it, it still stretched out a little bit into the late 70s. But this was definitely at, at the peak. And that was part of it. Satanism and the occult and the son of Satan and the second coming and revelations and all of that. This this is a product of the era for sure. And probably one of the best representations of all that. Oh, absolutely. Um, I've seen The Omen several times over the years, uh, but it's been a while since I've seen this one, probably, or this trilogy, probably, I think, a decade easily. Um, I'm thinking back, you know, it was probably sometime between 2005 and 2010 when this particular box set that I have, which did not include Omen 4, uh, when it came out, and I watched all three of them right away. And I honestly don't think I've watched them since. So it's probably been a good, you know, 10, 12 years, maybe longer since I've seen the uh, the Omen trilogy. What about you? Probably at the most three years ago, I was doing a series. It may have been the countdown to Halloween of all 70s movies for that, that month. And I did the Omen. And at that time, and this just floors me. I argued that it did not hold up well, and I really was seeing flaws in it. To me, it stretched, stretched and dragged, and I was afraid I was going to come sit here today and say the same thing, but I watched it again this week, and I know I'm back to what I've always thought. It is a fantastic movie. It is so well made. It is it's terrific. I don't know what, why I had that little blip, but you know, like I said, I had originally seen it in theaters. I've always loved it it's the 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 story elements that i'm sure we're going to get into and the mystery that's the the well let's go i want to ask you this if you think about the omen and maybe before you watched it just recently what about it do you remember what which of its themes or its characteristics i mean obviously the antichrist but i mean particular story elements is there anything that stands out for you i i I, for me uh the music Jerry Goldsmith is just, Mm -hmm. he does an amazing score, and music can often make or break a film. Um, The elements of the, like the archaeological dig part of it, the the character of Carl Bugenhagen, and the the discovery of the ancient artifacts and the imagery and stuff, to me that, I don't want to say legitimizes the film, but it, it, it takes it, you know, just beyond a okay here's the the spawn of satan showing up kind of it's like no let's there's a lot of biblical references in this film there was a lot of thought that went into you know what is said in revelations and whether you're you know a christian or not whether you believe in the bible or not just seeing and hearing the quotes you know appear on screen and 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 recited in the film to me it 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 ups the game of the film a little bit it it 
makes you begin to feel like what you're watching, you know, is almost part historical in a way. Are these documents really, really out there? Uh, something that I think in some of the, you know, the location shots is something that I think is lacking in a lot of contemporary horror films. I think that, you know, a lot of this kind of information, the, the research and oftentimes is found on the internet or whatever. You're not finding it in ancient scrolls and ancient books and you're not seeing people which I think happens in the second film, you know, or maybe, no, I guess it's the start of the third film where they're in the library and they're looking at the information, all these old books and stuff. Yeah, the internet's a wonderful place and you can get all this cool stuff, right? But from a pure image perspective, nothing's cooler than someone sitting at a library table with four or five ancient books and they're flipping through this book and flipping through that book doing legitimate research and not letting Google do it for you. That I that's the part of it I loved. Old school, you know, movie making and old school, you know, research and investigation that's you just don't get in contemporary horror films. And for me it's the element of the murders. They in a way it's sort of a precursor to Final Destination. I mean, these are unique, bizarre murders that happen. And it's not just that they happen, because that's one of the flaws with Omen 2, I feel, is because they stuck with the murders, but there's no, they're not clever. There's nothing, no mystery to them. Here we've got the mystery of the photo predicting the murders. And that adds to the layer of a, a sort of a race against time well, be, before the next person. They're, they're not murders. Well, I, I apologize. You're but, absolutely no, right. That's part, of, yes. that's part of the excitement is that these things could could have happened anyway. You could sit there and say, well, the lightning could have struck and right. could have caused the javelin to come flying off the church. And, you know, that piece of glass could have slid off the truck. You know, these things could have happened. So you start, as the movie works you know, through its process, it's like, well, is he really the spawn of Satan or is this just coincidence? Is it, is, you know, crazy people seeing things where it's not there? You know, and until you get to that later scene and the revelation in the cemetery, which we'll talk about, I mean, until that point, you were there was assumptions, there was things that looked odd, but you didn't see anything black and white. It wasn't like, you know, you were seeing the cloven hoofed, you know, demon coming down the street and was like, I am a Satan and I'm going to take over the world. You didn't see that. And and but that revelation in the in the cemetery then all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a minute. This really is happening. And I, and I think that's... The murders, as you said, are great because they, they could have been explained as accidents. But then once that revelation happens, you're like, now this is a very orchestrated, very... It, it's not a, a slasher per se. It's like, I don't care how you die, I'm just going to stab you. It's like, no, we're, we're going to do a, a Dr. Fives-ish way of, of getting rid of these people it's it's we're going to cover our tracks we're going to get rid of who we need to get rid of but we're not going to draw any suspicion to anyone yeah and that that element that i love so much about it is for me what's missing in in both of the sequels but we'll get to those yeah and i think that that uh, the mystery and the discovery revelation that you're talking about i think is reflected best with you know gregory peck's character is it richard or robert thorne Robert Thorne. Robert Thorne. Because he, I don't know, I kind of wanted to ask you about this too. Do you think he goes through a realistic level of disbelief, belief, acceptance? I was thinking 
he kind of goes up and down. And, you know, at one point we think, oh, he's accepted it. And then he turns around and, and says, no, you know, we're not going to kill my son. This is a child. But then, of course, and in sort of all the movies, the, the thing that clinches the deal is the, the, sixes, the three sixes birthmark on the hair that's yeah. like that's the proof you'll need that's 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 the final proof i mean yeah. he, you know the the revelation in the in the cemetery right where he's on this investigation with the reporter he's he's suspecting something's not right the cemetery is kind of like you know it's kind of like a a two-part almost like a well you know i would say a, a three-part coming to terms because that revelation in the cemetery when he opens the grave and we'll do a spoiler alert because if you haven't seen the movie, you need to see it. But the revelation of the of the jackal in the one grave, right, the mother's grave, and then of course seeing the the cracked skull of his son in in the other grave that was supposed to be the other baby. That's like okay, that's the first revelation that something's not right, and maybe he really is the the, the spawn of Satan. And I think the next one is the loss of his wife. That's taken a huge piece of his life out. And then that that final 666, that's the icing on the cake, is like, okay, now I know what I have to do. So each of those things you mentioned has another level, and I want to talk about it, because it's not just that he finds the, the boy's skeleton. It's the moment before he opens it, and maybe it's empty, or maybe it's another animal in there, which means... His son might really be alive yes. somewhere else. Maybe yeah. they switched. So that is amazing. So yeah, to open it and see, no, it is indeed a boy, not who just died, but you can tell was murdered. The there's a oh, yeah. hole in his yeah, skull. Yeah, that is excellent. Losing his wife. That was predicted by the crazy priest. I know we're going to talk about him, Father Brennan. Yes. And so he he Gregory Peck wants to defy the prophecy. He's like, no, it was foretold that. Well, I don't. I don't think it was his wife but she's pregnant at the time she dies yes. again and the, the father brendan tells peck that you know he has you know your wife's pregnant that child is going to die and gregory peck is like somebody predicted that would happen he's bound and determined not to let that happen you know he's fighting it he he's been shown the evidence but he's fighting against it i i think it's a pretty natural progression of of acceptance i mean i, I think it's realistic i think he does a fantastic performance. I think he's a bit old. He was 60 when they made that, and they must have ordered Grecian formula by the gallon. But he's good. He's really good in it. And his Lee Remick, who plays his wife, was only 41 at the time. So 20 years difference. And I mean, I'm, you know, age, age, who cares? But actually, I don't know that they, they actually, I don't know if he was dying his hair because. Okay, so we're talking Patrick Troughton, so let, let's just... Well, well, well how do we jump to that from well, Grecian Formula? <laughs> well, I'm just saying, I saw him and he did Doctor Who. By this point, of course... No, no, I'm talking about uh, Gregory Peck. Oh, I thought you were talking about Father Brennan. No, well, I, I kind of mixed up, but no, I'm talking oh, okay. about Gregory Peck. I'll how I think my he, Doctor yes. reference to later. I was going to say, come on, he, there's a little <laughs> bit of Grecian Formula with Gregory Peck, don't you think? Well... I don't know. I mean, I'm maybe, maybe. I don't know. He, he just seemed he seemed too old for me, but but yet his performance is fantastic, nevertheless. So when you know the background of what happened to Gregory Peck around the time of this, it puts a new light on on the movie. His son Jonathan committed suicide in 1975. Hmm. So literally a year before this movie was released, and probably not too 
much farther before the you know production of the film started, he lost his son. And that's one of the reasons why he took the role of the tortured father, you know, Robert Thorne, because he was actually filled with guilt that he wasn't there for his son when he committed suicide. And so Gregory Peck, a lot of people advised him not to take the role because, I mean, the end of the movie, spoiler alert, he's supposed to kill his son. And considering what he had gone through personally, Gregory Peck felt very compelled to to do this movie for those personal reasons. Hmm. To the extent that he took a huge cut in pay to do the film. He was only paid $250,000 to do the movie. He wanted 10% of the film's box office gross. So he took a cut in pay in order to make sure he got the role and took the gamble. Sometimes that 10% box office you know, gamble pays off. Talking to you, Robert Downey Jr., who signed a lower-end contract initially and made probably 20 times the money he would have otherwise when he did the Avengers and Iron Man films. Uh, Gregory Peck ended up... Uh, well, I mean, the film's box office gross was $60 million in the United States alone. Ultimately, this movie, while not the best film that he did, I mean, arguably, there's other films that were probably bigger and more classic... This was actually the highest he ever got paid for any of his movies. Hmm. And that was because of the, the the successful box office that it had. I mean, he was in films like The Yearling and The Paradigm Case and To Kill a Mockingbird, Roman Holiday, the original Moby Dick in 56. But this movie surpassed all of those in, in box office takes and, hmm. and what he actually earned. He also, 22 years after this, gotta got to mention it, he was in Moby Dick, the TNT production in which Patrick Stewart from Star Trek The Next Generation, Captain Jean-Luc Picard, played Captain Ahab in that miniseries remake version of, uh, of Moby Dick. So, I don't know. You know this background of Gregory Peck. It, it just enhances, I think, for me, when I was watching this movie, because I knew that going in. is like, I'm kind of blown away at some points in the film, especially towards the end of the movie. And I, you got to know that some of the anguish that he is showing and trying to come to terms with who his son is, he was pulling that from real-life anguish. And I think that's really enhances this, his performance in this movie. Hmm. I had no idea about that. That's, But yeah, I think you can see it. So let's talk about your boy, Patrick Troughton, Father Brennan. Before we get into all the references we have... <laughs> yeah, there's there's plenty of references, I, uh, and so I'm, that's the heads up. You yeah. know, I, well, well, what do we think about his performance, the character? Patrick Troughton, you know, he had been in, in Hammer films before. He had done Scars of Dracula, the, the Gorgon. He was in Phantom of the Opera, Jason the Argonauts. He had played the second Doctor doc, in Doctor Who, you know, for three seasons. The second Doctor, was that... Doctor what? Yes, Doctor what? Doctor who's? Yeah. He did it for three seasons and left. Not because of age, uh, not because of poor ratings. He he was the one that first incorporated this idea of, you know what, three and done. And he passed that advice on to uh, the fifth Doctor, Peter Davison, who had did three seasons. He said, son, leave it. Do three <laughs> seasons and go. Pat Peter Davison has since said he regrets leaving it after three seasons. He wished he w- and he should have stayed for probably another, you know, two years. Other actors have followed that even to today, like actors like David Tennant or, or Matt Smith, 
Matt Smith left after three regular full seasons and mentioned it's because of Patrick Stewart so or Patrick Troughton. Patrick Troughton, though, wasn't a mainstream actor. I mean, he was known to Doctor Who fans. He was known to Hammer fans, but he wasn't a leading man. He didn't have that that build. He didn't have... I don't know. You couldn't call him a character actor, but I, I suppose you probably could in reference to the fact that he was usually playing supporting roles. I think that in this in this film, the Patrick Trout has a way, and he does this with the Doctor Who with the Doctor role that he plays. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Richard just took off his glasses. I think we're getting into some deep, <laughs> deep thought here about. Well, he had a way of, of playing the the Doctor, a mixture of of angst and you know you don't see it in this film, but with kind of like childlike wonder. He was referred to um, as a cosmic hobo, is, is, a, is a common you know, d- depiction of the second Doctor. And so whenever I see him in a role, that's the role that I, I, I almost feel like, you know, there's a little bit of the Doctor in, in the roles. And, and then I get to thinking, maybe that's a little bit of Patrick Troughton was in the Doctor role, and he, and he carries that in all his roles. Because to me, I, you feel the anguish of Father... Brennan in this when he's desperate to get Robert Thorne to understand what's going on, what's happening. He, he certainly goes to the extreme when he starts saying you've got to drink the blood of Christ and, and eat his body and, and you know, he's talking about partaking of Holy Communion, but he's doing it in such a way that sounds a little bizarre for someone who isn't part of that Catholic upbringing. And I, I just, I felt, I felt his his uh, desperation into trying to, I think, well, I, trying to right or wrong because he has 666 on him as well. Why? And see, my, so my thought was, that. so the thought has always been the Antichrist has 666 on him, so that kind of is, a, is an odd plot development. Was he supposed to be the Antichrist or was it just that he had sold his soul to the devil? Because there's other cases in, in the movies where Someone in, in a holy position has certainly kind of, you know, gone down a darker path. So, to my mind, you know, he, he was tortured. He sold his soul at some point for whatever reason and is now trying to basically, he, in his mind, he knows he's going to hell, but he's trying to right the wrong, you know, while he's still here on earth. When you when you go see his, his room... It's covered in, you know, wall-to-wall and in Bible pages and crosses everywhere. He was, as uh, David Warner's character, um, the, the reporter Jennings said, you know, it wasn't that he was, you know, trying to, to keep himself. He was trying to keep something out. But, you know, no, he said he was trying to keep something in or trying to keep something out. out. Yeah. Hey, Patrick Troughton, I, you know, I loved his role in this. I'm going to mark out because he's, you know, in Doctor Who, but I liked his... His uh, just the tortured soul, you know, that he gave to the to the character of Father Brennan, and especially at the end, he's. And it's, I had to do a, a a chuckle that only Doctor Who fans will appreciate. The Doctor's always running, especially in, in the contemporary version. But in, you know, Patrick Troughton was a very physical Doctor. We had had William Hartnell for three years, who was the crotchety old grandfather, and didn't get involved in the physical action. Troughton being younger they would incorporate much more physicality from him. And he's not a big, hulking, muscular guy. So he would run a lot and sometimes often clumsily. 
and I chuckled at when he's running from the from the lightning bolts. It's like that was so Doctor Who. He had to have flashbacks when he made that scene of of pulling off scenes when he was in, in doing Doctor in in the sixties. And he, you know, he was still a relatively young man when he when he was playing the role. That's where I you threw me when you were talking about the Grecian formula. Gotcha. I thought you were talking about him because I was like, you know, he actually, um, you know, he died in 1985. Um, he had uh, a heart attack just three years after the making of this film, um, and then had another major heart attack in 1984. And it was the third heart attack that he had in 1987 that uh, unfortunately took his life just two days after his 67th birthday. Mm. Um, he was never um, never a, a strong muscular type. He was he was he had a frail heart. He had he was kind of frail much of his life, but in the last you know um, I guess you know decade of his life or eight years or so, you know he was dealing with heart issues and was repeatedly told slow down slow down slow down and he and he didn't care he was actually at a uh, convention in the united states when he died of a heart attack you know he was at the magnum opus con 2 in columbus georgia um he was there for the weekend he was getting ready to do a screening of a classic doctor who story called the dominators he was you know expressed how he was eager to watch it again which he hadn't seen it since it's originally aired in the 60s and um, he had a heart attack, a uh, third and final heart attack there at the convention. And he had just reprised his role of Doctor Who months before, uh, role of Doctor Who, role of the Doctor on Doctor Who in a story called The Two Doctors, and it aired actually after his death. Um, and it wasn't until those last few years that actually the gray started to come through on his hair. That's why I went okay. with the whole Grecian formula in a roundabout way. Because he was actually still a young man. He was only in his 60s when he passed. And so, you know, when he did... So if his birthday was in March of 87 and he turned 67, if you go back 11 years, he was in his late 50s. Looked maybe a little older than that, but he was actually still a relatively young man uh, at the time this movie was made. And it's probably aside from... I think aside from from, uh, his role as the second Doctor, I think it's his most famous role even over his supporting roles in the Hammer films, because this is a key role in this movie. And I'll shut up now. (laughs) I thought if you know that the Antichrist is living and where he is and you're trying to convince somebody, you don't enter the room frantic and say... You must accept Jesus Christ as your savior. Oh, he was he was horrible at convincing. Yeah. So, but you know, I can justify that because later they do explain after he dies that he was riddled with cancer and he was on morphine. So that could have contributed to his behavior, but there's just no way he would have convinced. Well, and of course then we wouldn't have had a movie, but it just seems like not the approach to take if you're trying to convince somebody. No, and that's why I was thinking the desperation. He knew he was dying. He had already sold his soul, we assume. I mean, with the 666, he he knew that time was running out. I mean, you know, the Antichrist is on Earth. His time is running out. Let's kill the Antichrist. And he and he wanted to see that done before he himself lost the battle with uh, with cancer. So, and yeah, the morphine, I think, would have amplified his, his crazed approach. But I think yeah, at that point, he was probably already uh, dealing with some issues, you know, aside from the health issues. He was dealing with mental health issues 
because he was, you know, you've sold your soul to the devil and now you're trying to right or wrong. It's going to have an effect on you as a person. And I think that's where the the, the frantic desperation mode kicked in. And, and no, I mean, his approach was, was not good at all. The other character I had an issue with a, a little bit with was Mrs. Baylock, And she's fantastic. She's creepy as heck. I always have a hard time buying the way she infiltrates herself into the household. She comes in and says, hey, I'm the the uh, child's new nanny. Neither one of the parents arranged for her to come. Now, of course, when she's there in front of them, they assume the other one took care of it. But when she leaves and they talk about it and they decide that, no, neither one of them did, why would you still let her <laughs> come in and be the nanny? Yeah, it's like... Yeah, that that was kind of crazy. It's like as as soon as they're like, "Well, did you? No, did you?" I guess maybe different times, you know. Nowadays, we know that <laughs> nannies do bad things to kids. So, yeah, that that was. And uh, you could also that could be a hole if you were. You could take it as a sign that well, their parenting isn't too good. They're not around, and all, but. They spend so much time showing them walking together in the country, and we know that they love that kid. I just found it hard. This is uh, kind of silly, but when they're uh, walking through the meadow and they're dragging that that little rolling, you know, horse or whatever, it's like you're dragging it through this meadow. And I'm like, I know there was a sidewalk that got him to the meadow <laughs> or something, but I'm just kind of like. What are they thinking? Carrying that as, as a parent, I'm like, you know, that's not good parenting 101. I don't know. That's that. I, I remember that when I saw it and, and the first time years ago. That for some reason makes me chuckle. So those are my only complaints with it. They're minor. I can justify them in one way or the other. Otherwise, I, I love everything about this movie. What else you got for us about it? Oh, I got all sorts of fun trivia. Talking about the cast, I mean, you've got an amazing cast in this movie and that that's it shines so much over the other two films, especially the third film. Lee Remick played Robert's wife, Catherine Thorne. I mean, she wasn't necessarily a character actress, but she's one of those actresses like you've seen in films. She wasn't always the leading lady, per se. She wasn't a an actress like a Julia Roberts, who you know is the lead star. But she was in uh, films like Anatomy of a Murder, The Medusa Touch... Um, Experiment in Terror, which is a film that I desperately want to see. I've, I've seen clips of it, and it looks amazing. Have you seen that movie? No. Like a, It's about a serial or a, a killer or something. It looks really interesting. I've, huh. just, I've seen clips of it. It's been on maybe Turner Classic Movies or Comet sometime in the last year. She was actually blacklisted at one point for back in the, uh, you know, the uh, McCarthy hearings. She had to take pretty much any role that she could get to try to resurrect her career, which is why she took this role. I mean, she, she her frame of mind was you never turn down a role. She had to take some pretty bad roles to uh, resurrect her career, and so that's why you would find someone like this. And I think it helped as well that Gregory Peck was in it, who was not the first choice as Robert Thorne, incidentally. William Holden actually was offered the part and turned down the role because he... Uh, didn't think the movie was, you know, he thought it was a below his standards. And then, of course, The Omen does so incredibly well <laughs> that he jumps at the chance to do Damien Omen 2 and then probably regretted Surprise. it. Uh, a couple of other names, Roy Schneider, Roy Scheider. I can't, 
Yeah. Roy Scheider. Roy Scheider was was up for the role. Oh, up, I apologize. Not in the cast. Not in the yeah, cast. Yeah, not like, for the role. I missed him. What? <laughs> uh, Charlton Heston. That would have been different. That would have been that would have been different. I mean, I could kind of maybe see Get Charles. Get your <laughs> hands off me, you damn dirty antichrist. <laughs> <laughs> That'd been awesome. Now this one, I saw this and I'm like, this would have been a turn for his career. Dick Van Dyke. I think, you know, it would have been interesting, but man, that would have been a, a dark turn for him. I, I, I don't know, you know, how, where his career would have gone. But if you think about mid to late 70s, Dick Van Dyke wasn't really doing much at that point. He hadn't had his resurrection uh, of his career with the diagnosis for murder. So that was kind of a, 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 a no man's land period of time for him. So it would have been interesting. Lee Remick, you know, I hadn't heard of her for a long time. And I thought, well, did she retire? I didn't realize she, she died so long ago, 1991, and she was only 55. When she passed, she died of uh, kidney, lung, and liver cancer. Oh, my goodness. So she she was hit with a trifecta of evil there. Um, you didn't say also who was considered Oliver Reed. Oh, yes. Yes, that's right. I, Oliver Reed. And I I could see Oliver Reed pulling it off, maybe. Um, maybe. I mean, he would have he would have approached it very differently. Um you know, he would have been most likely intoxicated at least 50% on the set. So uh, <laughs> that's being generous. Uh, I love Oliver Reed. I think he could have pulled it off. I mean, I'm thinking of The Brood was done, you know what, two yeah. years later. And what he did in that, kind of take that era of Oliver Reed. I could see him doing that. This is a big Star Trek and uh, a minor Doctor Who connection. David Warner playing the reporter Jennings. Multiple roles in Star Trek. He played uh, Chancellor Gorkon, the Klingon, in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Just two years before that, he played the American ambassador St. John Talbot in Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. In the uh, early 90s, I think like 92, 93, he played a Cardassian by the name of Gul Madred in Star Trek The Next Generation, two-part episode, Chain of Command. He's the Cardassian who is torturing Captain Picard. And for Star Trek fans, that's the famous uh, where he's torturing Picard and, he, and he's showing him lights. And he says, do you see three lights? Or, or it's like three lights or four lights. And he's trying to get Picard to say that there's four lights when there's only three lights. That's a, a very intense, one of the best episodes of that series. And Picard's performance is amazing. Anyway, he's in that episode. He played... When yeah. you're saying which Cardassian he played, I wondered if it was, you know, Chloe or uh, that's a whole Kim. Nother, that's a whole other horror yeah, story yeah, right yeah. there. You've got, of course, and I just saw this about two months ago. Time after time, where he plays, mm, love that essentially Jack the Ripper in that one. Uh, wonderful movie, Time Bandits. He was just recently in Mary Poppins Returns, so he's still acting. Uh, but he's also in a, uh, and I honestly. I'm not remembering the role he played, but he was in a 2013 episode of Doctor Who called Cold War. And I think, I think that's an episode that features villains called the Sea Devils. Um, but don't quote me on that. Uh, but in any case, you know, he's in modern Doctor Who. Not much to say about Billy Whitelaw, who plays Mrs. Blaylock. A couple of films, she was uh, alongside Jack Palance in Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, 1968. Lots of TV work, Space 1999, she was in that. Um, 
You've got uh, Leo McKern plays Carl Bugenhagen. I love him as an actor. He's just this fun character actor. It, of course, was uh, 43 episodes of Rumpel of the Bailey. He was in the Prisoner television series back in the 60s. X the Unknown, Marvel, or Marvel Hammer <laughs> film. Last but not least, we have Damien, played by, well, I guess a few different, but the the more commonly seen version of Damien in this film was played by Harvey Stevens. Didn't really do much in his career, but he did play a tabloid reporter in the 2006 remake of The Omen, which I thought was kind of an interesting little cameo, an odd, you know, a nod to the past. So, hmm. the film is written by David Seltzer, who didn't have a prolific career, but he did do the Prophecy. Uh, he also did uh, a few films from the 90s that I, oddly enough, remember. Bird on a Wire with Mel Gibson and, and Goldie Hawn and Shining Through, which had... Uh, Oh, Melanie Griffith in it. So, uh, a few odd films like that in, in his career. Of course, we've got the film directed by Richard Donner. Who's uh, he? What has he done? What, what has he done? Yes, well, we're talking Superman the movie, the uh, director's cut of Superman 2, other films like Lethal Weapon, The Goonies, Scrooge. And he also directed, earlier on in his career, I did not know this, he directed episodes of The Twilight Zone. I probably knew that and I forgot about it. Another big Star Trek connection, um, I think we've already mentioned it, is you know Jerry Goldsmith doing the music. So he did the music for lots of films, uh, Gremlins, Legend, Mulan, but he did it for Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1979. Interestingly enough, that theme that he gave Star Trek in that movie would pop up again in um, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, but it would also, with a few tweaks, be the theme for Star Trek The Next Generation, which ran you know, for seven seasons, and that was the theme that it had throughout its, its run, and even briefly carried over into the movies. As well, he did uh, music for other Star Trek series, which I didn't realize this, but he did music for Star Trek uh, Voyager, and as well as for the Star Trek Nemesis movie. I didn't realize he did the music for that, so... Hmm. Again, I probably knew that and forgot about it. So, And he also did the unique music for Planet of the Apes. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, uh, I didn't have that, but I remembered that. So, and, and that in itself, incredibly iconic. Interestingly enough, though, The Omen uh, was his only Oscar. I, I thought for that sure he would have won like... Oscar for something else. He's got to have been nominated many, many times. Nominated, yes. That's where it said... He didn't want to attend the Academy Awards because he'd already lost multiple times and didn't want to go through the ordeal of losing again. And that bell tells us it's... (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. Next movie. Next movie. So, yeah, I mean, so he didn't want to go because he thought he'd been... He was going to lose again. Ah, what a shame. But I think he did go um, and ends up winning, you know. And it's an iconic soundtrack. It's it's a, a very... It's, it's been copied in a lot of other films, the the chanting, the you know the, that that immediately I, when you hear it, you just think you know the Antichrist is nearby. You just it's one of those iconic horror themes, copied many times, never as good as it is here in the original. That's about it for all I had. Well, I did have a couple of other little trivia things here. The dog that we see, Mrs. Blaylock's ominous dog, which is Damien's dog, in real life was a lover, not a fighter. Aww. And they couldn't get him to stop licking people. They were <laughs> wanting him to be mean. Apparently, he wanted to, to hug and snuggle and kiss everybody. David Warner, 
he actually kept his severed head for several years and he actually lost it in a divorce and his ex-wife took the head oh. which you know you know it's a bad divorce when your ex-wife is literally oh. taking your head so uh, I thought that was that was kind of funny you know there's a the omen is, is a classic and there's I could probably come up with 20 other things one thing what do you know about the the so-called omen curse Nothing, but now that you say that, it, it seems like I'm vaguely aware of it. So one of the, the special features on the DVD was the Omen Legacy. It was a documentary made by uh, AMC back in the day when they were American movie classics. So here's a spoiler. Don't see that documentary until you've seen all three movies, or all four movies, if you go on to see Omen 4, because it really does a lot of spoiling. It, it goes into details with each of the four films, and it also has a lot of interviews with, like, Richard Donner and David Seltzer. It has interviews that pop up about two other times on special features on the DVD. I was seeing the same comments three times. It got a bit repetitious. So you could probably save yourself, just watch this documentary after you've seen all the movies, and you'll get all the little sound bites that you need and all the little details, and see recaps of all four films. But if you see it before, it's going to spoil the film if you haven't if you haven't seen the films before, so definitely don't do that. But they talk about the Omen curse. Richard Donner, not, not a fan of that, and, and he gave an interesting thing. There was a lot of so-called weird incidents, you know, planes malfunctioning, you know, carrying Gregory Peck, and all this stuff that you hear. But he said... If we were doing a, a comedy, he said, we would recollect about all the funny things that had on the, happened on the set, and we'd forget the day that the light came crashing down and almost killed somebody. It's, it's when you, you know, all the little crazy things. He says, we're making a movie about the Antichrist, so we're going to remember all of the, the crazy things that, you know, happened, and we're going to forget about the laughter on the set. There was a curse behind The Exorcist, too. I think it's a little bit the marketing department takes it, sure, runs with sure. it, and it becomes a bit of legend when, in fact, you know what? Every movie has some type of accident. I, inevitably, if you take 10 random films from Hollywood, probably 50% of them had somebody who died during the making of the film. You know, whether it's a cast member, a production crew, the guy who brought donuts on Sunday morning, somebody has had some type of accident or passed away or had a relative that died, if you want the curse to be part of your marketing, you're going to find stories to come up with it. So I don't think that there's any curse involved with this at all. I think that was the marketing department and just real life happening while everything else was going on. I want to talk about the ending just for a moment. I remember seeing it the first time and you know, big, big, big spoiler, you know, what happens is Gregory Peck gets Damien, drags him to the church, pins him down. He's been given instructions with seven daggers to put them in a special order to form the cross on his chest, has him pinned on the altar with his knee, arm raised when the police burst in and fire. And there's a slow motion shot of the bullet coming out. And, and then that's it. First time I saw that, I honestly didn't know. Was he successful or not? How about you? Was that just... I don't know if I ever thought about it, to yeah. be honest with you. I, 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 yeah. So then that made the ending when he's standing at the funeral of his parents 
and he turns around and looks at the camera with sort of a little stinger or a little shock because, oh my gosh, he did survive. See, I, I think that I had seen that that clip of him turning around, and so I, I, I think when I originally saw the movie for the first time, I assumed that, well, you know, it, well, and of course also knowing that there's Omen 2, so, I, you know, you, would, you probably wouldn't have been that suspense until, unless you saw it originally in theaters. Then it was the question, you know, well, did they kill him or did they not? After that, I think the suspense is obviously ruined because you know that, well, yeah, there was a third and a fourth and, you know, what yeah. have you. So when he does turn, he's standing there with the president and the first lady. Now, Robert Thorne was appointed to ambassador to Great Britain during the movie, and it was sort of understood he was on a presidential career path. And you've got this whole story, I think it comes in the prophecies or whatever, that the Antichrist is born and he, you know, moves through the world of politics. That's how he gains his power and moves up. And, you know, that's like, oh my, you know, how, what better way? And he's in the White House now, you know? Yeah. Great, great. Yes, yes, he is. (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't resist. (laughs) So great place for a sequel, right? Yeah. Why didn't they do it? (laughs) Oh, that is so frustrating. And let me tell you, the the thought of a sequel in general, that is a great, if there had never been another movie, what a great standalone movie that is, you know. But, uh, well, number one, it was a success, so of course they're going to make a sequel. Number two, there's just something about evil kid movies. You want to know what happens to them. Well, what happens now when they grow up? You know, they did it with Rosemary's Baby. Whatever happened to Rosemary's See, Baby? I always think about that in slasher movies. You know, there's always that one you know kid that survives. And I'm like, so what's the rest of their life going to be like? I mean, they have just been chased by a guy in a hockey mask, uh, and you know, all of their friends are gone. It's like. I'm seeing lots of therapy, and you know, and you do get that in some movies. I mean, I think they they cover that in Nightmare on Elm Street three a little bit, you know, where yeah, there's there's you know ramifications and and things happen. So, but yeah, I always wonder that. So again, what great happens. concept, yeah. you know, great. Yeah. We're gonna have a fantastic sequel. We're gonna see what happened. Where's that movie? Yeah, because it's when you get to the second film, it doesn't quite explain. How he he got from being yeah. hand in hand with the president and the first lady, and then getting to you know you Uncle, know, Uncle Richard. Uncle Richard, yes. Well, let's let's stop there. We're we're starting to talk about Omen too, but let's uh, let's adjust our expectations a bit. Take a break. Come back, and we'll talk about this sequel. The terror of the past is but a taste of the future. What happened before was a hint of the horror to come. The first time was only a warning. William Holden, Lee Grant, Damien, Omen 2. Tell me about Damien. What sort of a boy is he? He's your brother's son. He's a boy you've loved for seven years. Well, you can't believe it. And... It's over. It is a filthy, stupid story, and it's over. The current's got him! You mustn't attract attention. You're not going to treat Damien any differently. You're not going to look at him. You're not going to talk to him any differently. The day will come when everyone will know who you are, but that day is not yet. I know who you are. Say it, Mark. 
Get Mark away from Damien. Look at me, Mark. Damien, there are things you don't understand. Read your Bible. Unexplained horrible accidents. We are all in great danger. You can't make it believe it. You've got to believe it. He killed Mark, he killed Atherton and Viserion. And he'll keep on killing. He'll kill anyone he thinks is threatening him. Listen to yourself. Listen to how crazy it sounds. Man, I saw Charles kill. I saw Damien's face on the wall. William Holden. Where's Damien? Lee Grant. Damien, Omen 2, the first time was only a warning. The first time was only a warning. 13-year-old Damien Thorne, now living in Chicago with his uncle Richard and his family, may not be a good influence on his cousin Mark, but nobody expects him to be the Antichrist, least of all him. Nevertheless, his future disciples have infiltrated his life and against the backdrop of the military academy where he's a model cadet, they encourage him to put away his childish things and accept who he really is. Damien Omen 2. A missed opportunity to me if there ever was one. Now, this isn't a horrible movie, but it's just so odd. It's like they took... Like you do in a sequel, you want the elements that were popular in the first one. You want to repeat the success. So, we have two named actors that are really carbon copies of Gregory Peck and Lee Remick with William Holden and Lee Grant, right? Lee yes. Grant? Yeah. yeah. So that is the same, you know, a same age group, parents, you know, raising the kid. Uh, we have the, the deaths that we already talked about, the accidents, but it seems just like a series of those. There's more of them. They're less creative. It's like that was the focus rather than that mystery in that story. We've already talked about that. I don't want to repeat myself, but I just felt like it, you know, they tried to take, maybe they took the elements that worked in the Omen, but they just didn't execute them in a new or original way. They took this concept that would have been so interesting. And I also want to say, I I could swear, and I did not find any documentation, but I distinctly remember when the Omen was such a hit, there was a plan to make four movies and they were going to show different stages of his life and that was really i thought that was a fantastic idea well then this movie bombed as big a success as the omen was this was not 
and they adjusted and decided, okay, we're going to do one more and wrap it up, and that was the final conflict. You know that everything's there, or or is it? I mean, have we really seen what what other mystery is there to wring out of it? We know he's the Antichrist. We know the other people don't, but. Can you see over and over again a crazy person trying to convince them it's the Antichrist, them not believing, them finding out? I mean, that's been done, and you can't do better than the way they did it. You know, what could you do in a sequel? I think I think you hit the nail on the head right there. It's like the first film has a measure of suspense, and it establishes this this character. But then where do you go? You know, where's the payoff? Now you're dealing with pre-teenage, you know, or however he old, however he old he was in this film. You know, and then he just keeps getting older and older. It's like, what's the ultimate payoff? To me, the second film is better than Exorcist 2. But, you know, to do a comparison to The Exorcist is this huge film that, you know, bigger than The Omen was. But not by much. I mean, The Omen was, was, was pretty big. Look at Exorcist 2 compared to The Exorcist. I mean, it's a huge step down, even though you've got Richard Burton. It's, it's you know, a notoriously bad film. I mean, it, it's got its issues. Damien Omen 2, I think, is, is a little bit better, but it, it ultimately it comes off as a pale version of the first film. They try to do some of the same things, right? They try to, to even like the, um, the deaths in this film are uninspired, uh, there's nothing that matches really what you get in the first film, with the exception being, I think, uh, Carl Bugenhagen's death in the beginning of the film is particularly horrific, you know, because it's kind of prolonged, and you're like, what a horrible way to die. You're basically being suffocated by sand. I liked that sequence. I liked seeing him back because it's a connection. I like the first two films, better than the third simply because they feel for the most part like they take place in the same world because you're dealing with another thorn you're dealing with kind of a continuation of of the story whereas the third film just seems disjointed the first two kind of seem connected and Carl Bugenhagen is the only one of course who comes back in the second film spoiler alert dispatched rather early but you've got that connection and his particularly horrific death after that the film loses, you know, a strong connection to the first, and the deaths from this point forward come nowhere close to being as inspired as they were. Again, a pale version of what we got in the original. I don't know. Uh, that's a little bit of behind-the-scenes stuff. Nothing, you know, really drastic that would explain, but maybe a couple of hints of, of why this returned, or, uh, excuse me, turned out like it did. first thing I want to say is... This producer, Harvey Bernard, and I don't know if you looked up any, I, I wish that I had, I didn't. Damien Owen II in Final Conflict, his name is the biggest name in the credits. It's like this became a producer's series of movies. Exactly. He yeah. cashed in and he was continuing to cash in. The, it lost really, at least Final Conflict maybe tried to be a little more artful or, or creative, maybe, but th- this is a, this became, you know, it, it it didn't become about the writer or the director. It became the producer, and he was wanted well, you, to go to the bank. Yeah, you talk about you know th- that there was four films. I think they even referenced more than that. Seven, for some reason, comes to my mind that he had this grand vision. You know, of this was going to be a long series of films, and then the second film flops, 
and all of a sudden it's like, well, never mind. And it seems like the final conflict was almost an afterthought to try to, well, we got this franchise. Let's see what we can do. We got to wrap it up. Years later, it's like, well, let's make a movie for television. Well, we got this franchise we could tap into. It's almost like, almost like what they did with the the Amityville horror series. It's like you got a great film, and then the second one comes out that is just nowhere near as good as the first, and everything after that is just trying to recapture that glory and loosely connecting. The Hellraiser series is notorious. The that's a series that starts off with such a classic beginning. The second film is such a huge drop downward. The third is even less so. And then four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, everyone after that. I've seen clips of some of those films, and some, most of them I don't even want to see because Pinhead has like such a small role. They're grasping at connections, trying to tie into that original. This one... You know, obviously not that, but not that bad. It's not grasping at connections, but it seems like it's just uninspired. And that I think, yeah, it's Harvey Bernard is is to, I think he's to blame for some of that. He he had this great idea, but he didn't have a a, a solid plan for what's what's the next chapter, what's chapter three, what's chapter four. Well, well, here's the thing. They started out right. His first move was to go back to David Seltzer and asked him to write. Yes. And Seltzer refused. He he didn't think it was a good idea. Now, this is so fascinating. Years later, he said, had he written the sequel, he would have had it pick up right after The Omen with Damien in the White House. What did yes. I just say earlier? Yeah. That would have been a great sequel. I wish, and you know who's, I don't know if David Seltzer's still alive, but I think I'd so, like well, to see was, it. Well, uh, documentary is 20 plus years yeah. old now at this point. But so. uh, that that is the sequel we should have had. So that they get for the writers, Stanley Mann and Mike Hodges. Now, these guys are okay. Stanley Mann wrote The Collector with Terrence Stamp in 65. He's credited for the idea of Theater of Blood, the, the Vincent Price 1973 movie. Meteor, eh. But Eye of the Needle, I remember, in 81 was a pretty yeah. good movie. Uh, and then they, well, of course, that was after uh, this. But then Mike Hodges, uh, who get Carter, Michael Caine, yeah, classic yeah. 71 and the terminal man 74 you know not bad stuff hired them i would have thought they would have come up with a better screenplay so they also hired hodges to direct but here's harvey he's too slow you know so they booted him and i don't he's not in the credits but imdb said he actually he did direct some of this movie yeah, uh you've got to direct a certain percentage in order to keep your name on it. And if when they replace you, if the replacing director does like, I don't know what that percentage is, but it does like 75% of the film, then they don't have to give the original director credit, even though elements of his direction are still present in the film. Yeah, I'm very with, uh, there are several films, but that I'm thinking of, but, um, Island of, uh, Dr. Moreau, you know, the ill-fated 96 version, same kind of circumstances. Like you replace the director and Bohemian Rhapsody, even more recent, you know, singers replaced, but only at like the 90% point. And so the director that comes in, oh, I can't even remember, finished the film, handled all the post-production work, but never got credited for his work because Singer had done 90 plus percent of the film at that point already. So, I, you know, Mike Hodges 
I wondered that is like, you know, how much did he actually do? Yeah, somewhere they brought in Don Taylor. Yeah, some I saw somewhere the, the scenes that he did, and so I just wonder, had he stayed, had they put a little more time into it, would we have gotten a different product? So yes, they bring in Don Taylor now. Don Taylor, great escape from Planet of the Apes, you know. Yeah. But you know, I kind of wonder. They say he was brought in because he had a reputation for finishing on time and under budget. And if you look at Escape from the Planet of the Apes, I, I love it. It might be my favorite in the franchise, but it's definitely scaled back. I mean, well, it's, there's something about a director who comes in is like, okay, he's coming in, finishing, you know, in less time and under budget. What's your goal here? Your you want to make a good movie? Or yeah, well, yeah, it's like, if, that, if that's what you're known for, it almost like you're the cleanup guy. Exactly. You know? And you said Island of Dr. Moreau. He, Don Taylor, directed Island of Dr. Moreau. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then Final Countdown, the only movie in my life I've ever walked out of because I was so bored. That's been a long time. I've always wanted to revisit it to see if I it was any better. But I haven't seen it since it was on HBO about every day back in the 80s. So. Oh, man, did that movie bore me in the theater. I wanted that to be better, but I, I remember the Yeah, it sounded great. So Anyway, that's just my little... Bo- I don't know if any of that is tumultuous enough to you know have caused any poor results of this movie, but it, it did have a little bit of drama behind the scenes. Well, it says the cast was, was a pale shade compared to the... Original, you know, William Holden uh, turns down the first film, eagerly accepts the second film. I'm not a William Holden fan. I I, I love Gregory Peck. William Holden, you know, stuff like Stalag 17, classic. Yes, he was in Bridge in the River Kwai, Network, Towering Inferno. He's not an actor that I'm like, I want to sit down and watch a William Holden movie. He's just not somebody who engages me that way. And Lee Grant's the same way. You know, she plays, uh, you know, they, they play Richard and Ann Thorne. Lee Grant's another actress that, and I wonder, you know, I'm beginning to think maybe Lee Grant was the one that got, that had been blacklisted. I might be thinking Lee Grant. If I miss, if I, I might have, that might be a, let's. Are we even now for the be, production errors? Be, I think so. <laughs> I'm beginning to think because I think she was also taking I'm beginning to think I'm yeah Lee Lee Grant I'm almost ninety percent sure how about that that she was the one that was blacklisted and was willing to take anything that came her way not too many years after this she did Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen so that kind of says a lot and I just don't think that William Holden and, and Lee Grant you know they just don't come anywhere close to Gregory Peck and, and Lee Grant McKinney original in my opinion and even the supporting cast. Nicholas Pryor is Charles Warren, who is kind of the the reporter. He's getting yep. his version. Yep. Every, there's a a weaker counterpart to almost every character in yeah. the moment. Yeah, and he's a character actor. He's I recognize him. He's lots of TV, up lots of TV work. He was in Hunger Games: Mockingjay Part One. I can't remember what role he played. Yeah, he's just a, he's a character actor, and, and he lots of TV work. He's a TV actor who you know I'm sure did film work. Yes, but. Nothing compared to David Warner. You know, a lot of other familiar, like Robert Foxworth playing Paul Bueller. I like him as an actor, but you know what? He's he's Chase from Falcon Crest. Oh, yes, he was also in Star Trek. There's another Star Trek reference for I told you there's a lot of them in mm-hmm. this one. I didn't have to look far. He played two characters, Admiral Layton in Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Admiral Velas in Star Trek Enterprise. He was also in Prophecy, which is a film I've mentioned uh, before. So Lou Ayers played Bill Atherton, the other Thorn Industries exec who ends up drowning underneath the ice. He was in Battle for Planet of the Apes. 
playing Mandemus. He was in Salem's Lot. He was in um, Bionic Woman, Questar Tapes, Battlestar Galactica. But he was also in All Quiet on the Western Front <laughs> in 1930. So I had to, I don't know what role he played. I love that movie, but a young man in that one, obviously. You know, of course, we talked about Leo McKern coming back as Carl Bugenhagen, but again, he's dispatched rather early in the film. I think out of the, the cast, the one who shines the most is Lance Henriksen, but that's because he had so much more coming down the pike. I mean, from, you know, he's still making movies, 248 films on his IMDb credit and counting. Uh, Aliens, Terminator, Near Dark, Millennium Series, gosh, what, Pumpkinhead, countless other films. Yeah, you know, I forgot he was in this, and I, I didn't did. even, I missed his name in the credits, and I'm like, who is that Lance Hendrickson? Very young. Interestingly, the same week I watched him in this, you know, I'm watching Legends of Tomorrow getting caught up. Yes. I saw the episode he was in. Uh, he yes. played Obsidian. Uh, so And, oh, man, he's, he's hanging in there, but does he ever look old? I don't think he ever looked young. Well, <laughs> that's thinking, true. That's if you true. think about it, even in this film, he's younger, but he, ha- he has a look. So. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, the, the cast to me, just um, in, in general... They're not given the, a great script, and they're not... Yeah, I don't know. Even, you know, you got to say... So Damien Thorne, I forgot to mention him. Jonathan Scott Taylor. His other biggest claim to fame... Home says, Improvement? Uh, no, that's not him. Uh, oh, that's Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Yes, okay. yes, Those yes. three named people that have the same first name, I get confused every time. Exactly, exactly. Have you ever seen Bugsy Malone? I have. Jodie Foster, in, right? Yes, he was in Bugsy Malone. Oh, really? Malone. Huh. Now, that's a movie that I don't even know if it's ever gotten a DVD release. For many years, it was missing in action on DVD. That was on, we were, prior to recording, we had lunch and we were talking about Pluto TV, which is a free app. If you've got Roku or Apple TV, you need to download Pluto because there's like so much free stuff on there, movies and music. And one of the movie networks that they have on there was playing Bugsy Malone. Huh. Yeah, it's got advertising and it's the inserted at the worst time. But I can't remember the last time I saw Bugsy Malone on television except the 80s. It used to play on uh, HBO all the time. If no one knows what I'm talking about, think Scott Bayo and Jodie Foster in a Godfather ripoff with kids, pies instead of machine guns, and the cars are tricycle cars or whatever. They're pedal cars, right? And and adults dubbing in the songs and characters act, acting way more sexy than they should. It's it's disturbing on multiple <laughs> levels. Yet I, that that movie's always engaged me for some reason. I've loved that movie. And uh, beyond that, he did a little bit of TV work, and then that was the end of his career. He ended up retiring in uh, nineteen eighty eight at the age of twenty six, and he's now an attorney. He's okay in this film. He's at an awkward. He's at an awkward. I don't age. think he's okay. I think he's bad. But. Well, okay, I'll agree. He's bad. <laughs> I mean, he, he's at that awkward age, right? So he's coming to grips. His character is coming to grips with who he really is, and I think the death of, of his of his cousin, where he essentially kills his cousin somehow in the forest. That's a bad scene. That's not a. I didn't think that was a well done scene. And, and and his lack of acting chops 
was very, very evident in that scene. Yeah, I made a note of that because he he does kill him with his mind powers or whatever. And uh, and the parents are walking nearby. They come or not well, his uncle and aunt. They come by and because we were wa- walking and he fell. I didn't do anything. Well, I I don't know. That's just an odd thing to say to me. What does he think automatically they'd accuse him of having well, done it? That, that, you know, that makes me think about, you know, Will, William Holden's Richard Thorne's journey of discovery of what Damien really is comes off as so fumbled compared to Gregory Peck's journey. And I think that's an example of a better script and a better actor, you know, pulling from real life experience and, and giving a, uh, a, a much better performance. I wasn't convinced at all that Richard Thorne, you know, I don't know. I just, I wasn't convinced of his journey or his sincerity, you know, or the, any anguish that he felt. I didn't pick up any of that to the point where when Gregory Peck dies in the first film, I, you feel something for him. You know, this was a guy who lost his child and was, was put in this situation and didn't ask for it. Spoiler alert, again, when William Holden dies at the end of this film in a twist that I actually had forgotten about, I really don't feel anything for the loss of his character. Uh, I don't feel anything for him. I, I didn't, because I, I, I wasn't made to feel for him. He wasn't an overly likable character. He wasn't a bad character. I just, I wasn't, there was nothing in the movie that made me want to like him. There's a couple scenes where he's joking around with his son and, and Damien, it's felt forced to me and I, I wasn't convinced. And I think that's why when, you know, that happens at the end of the movie, I'm like, okay, <laughs> I didn't feel anything. And that's the worst thing as a filmmaker. You want to, you want to make a movie that gets a reaction out of people. And when you have a big climactic moment and you don't get a reaction, you know, I think, and I obviously I wasn't the only one because the movie really did have poor box office results. And that's, because it was, as we've said numerous times, a pale shade of the original. Who else you got in the cast? There's a couple that uh, I'm going to mention if you don't. That's all I've got. Really? I, I, you don't have Meshach Taylor? I, well, you know, <laughs> I did see him listed, and I thought, uh, no, I bypass on him. But yes, yeah. uh, from Designing Women. I saw him, and I'm Mannequin like, 2. Wasn't he in Mannequin 2? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I saw him and like, no, that's not. So I couldn't take his character seriously. <laughs> and Joan Hart was played by Elizabeth Shepard. I, I don't have her whole res, um, resume like you usually do, but uh, she was in The Tomb of Lygia oh, with Vincent okay. Price. She was the main actress in that. Those were, were two standouts of the cast for me for other reasons. The, the part about the brother dying, again, talk about a squandered opportunity. I think I don't think the brother should have died because even that's a more compelling element for the next sequel because what if the brother had lived they're I don't know a couple years apart a year apart in age they could have grown up together be in business together he could be the good angel on one shoulder compared to Damon that would be the, compelling the, two brothers the and Bobby Ewing the JR yeah, there you go this. but you know two brothers and and you know Damien's is struggling because he loves his brother and you know I I don't know that I I thought that was a bad character to kill off they could, have, could have used you him. could have done yeah that could have been more compelling in the third film even throw in the the love interest that they're both maybe 
interested in the same woman and, and a little bit of drama thrown in there. Yeah, you could have done things with that. You could have done things. It, it seemed too easy, right? Every Any obstacle he had, he always surpassed the obstacle. And then we see what happens in the third film, and then it, it, it seems like you've survived 32 years, and then this happens. It's like, how did you survive 32 years? Yeah, it, you know, even... I don't know. This film is just uninspired. Uninspired. I keep going back to that. Even the music. Jerry Goldsmith comes back. It's uninspired. I, I didn't feel anything from the music in this one that I felt from the original. It's okay at times. It's passable at times. But beyond that, nothing. Yeah, and they don't even have to bring the dog back. They go with a bird instead. It's yeah. like they don't... I, the murders are uninspired. I did like that. I sort of like Joan Hart's death a, a little bit. Uh, you know, the little bit of retro, the birds peck her eyes out. She yeah. stumbles, falls in the dish, runs, f- crawls out onto the road and gets hit by a truck. I thought the way, this sounds horrible, but I thought the way she got hit by the truck was kind of interesting, how she kind of got thrown up over it and then yeah. fell and then it's a big semi so then it runs yeah, over yeah it runs over again yeah, yeah that's yeah. Uh, like I said horrible but I, I like that I liked the idea that as he's growing up there are like his disciples are being placed around him sort of to guide him and yeah. protect yeah. him I like, I, I like the concept don't think it was executed well but I like that I like the idea that he you know he doesn't really know what he is but he's hitting puberty and he's you know feeling different and you know, that's when those disciples are there to encourage him. But I don't like how all it takes is one afternoon of reading the Bible on his bed and he's got it all figured out. Yeah. That that seemed a little sudden. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, I'd and, agree. And then the last thing that I did like was when uh, near the end when he's at Cotillion and the, all the girls are sitting around him. I thought, yeah, that, you know, the Antichrist, he's got to be... Uh, dynamic and, and got to have some char- yeah, charismatic yeah, yeah, yeah. and this actor wasn't but the fact that uh the girls i thought well that that's an interesting yeah. concept but again an interesting ideal that's just squandered and, and goes nowhere question for you the plot point about his face being painted on the wall yeah what did you think of that um right so he's because they had that in the first movie right the the child the image of the of the child, right, matched the image, and then this one he's like older and yeah. Eh, I thought that was that was a, a, a kind of a typical let's make a sequel and let's do this, you know, that we kind of did it in the first film, but we don't want to include the image of the the baby, or you know, because people might not remember. So let's go ahead and just change things up a little bit and we'll have the image of the current actor. Yeah. I, and I, I guess you'd know what he's going to look like, but I don't know. You just, you see paintings of Jesus and all that and he's never quite the same. I mean, you don't know exactly what he looks like. So the fact that... Contrived. A contrived plot device. Yeah. Okay, good. Thank you. I agree. We don't need to go into that. And then the, the last thing I want to say, and this may be encapsulate everything I have to say about Damien Oman too but uh, so we already said Charles becomes the David Warner character and he's the one that thinks something's wrong and he's trying to convince Richard Thorne and what I have to say to you is not rational haven't you noticed anything unusual going on and this is after several deaths and William Holden is like well no not really I just thought that was ridiculous yeah <laughs> I agree <laughs> so 
You have switched your page. I think we're done with this one. Yes, I, you know, I didn't hate it. It just, seeing it back to back with the first film, it just, it's it's a big step down in quality. Um, it's not a film that you're going to watch by itself. And I think that's kind of telling of any any good trilogy or series of films. Will the film stand on its own merit? Or is it just going to be viewed when you're trying to be a completist watching the entire series? This is not a movie that I would choose to watch on its own. I would watch it if I decided to revi- you know, revisit the whole franchise and I'll see it because I'm a completist. It doesn't stand on its own. But I'm sure we'll be redeemed with the final conflict, right? Absolutely. I, right. I agree. Well, then, then let's zip right to that after we uh, hear its trailer. In 1976, the birth of evil was foretold in the omen. In 1978, a terrifying prophecy was fulfilled in Damien Omen 2. the ultimate challenge to the future of mankind as the trinity of living terror is completed in the final conflict. Yes, Mr. President. I've just appointed Mr. Damien Thorne as our new ambassador to the court of St. James. Damien Thorne is 32. Attractive, brilliant, charismatic. To the modern world, he brings a purpose, a vision, a destiny. He's one step away from the most important position on Earth. Disciples of the Watch, I stand before you in the name of the one who is cast out from heaven, but is alive in me. The power of evil is no longer in the hands of a child. the warning. Prepare for the final conflict, the concluding chapter of the Omen Trilogy. The power of evil is no longer in the hands of a child. When the current ambassador seemingly commits suicide, 32-year-old Damien Thorne, now the head of Thorne Industries and secretly manipulating world politics, becomes ambassador to Great Britain. He moves to London intending to deal with the second coming of Christ, but instead falls in love with a television news personality. Nevertheless, he sends his disciples to kill every baby born on the night of a unique celestial event, while at the same time being hunted by a band of religious assassins. We are back. Who's going to start with this one? You want to go for it or you want me to? The Final Conflict is the third film in the series. We watched it. We didn't like it. Thank you and good night. <laughs> um, well, you know what's funny is I, I've been for the podcast writing my list of things I like and list of things I don't like. There's actually more that I like in this movie than I dislike. However, the combination is deadly and I do not in any way, shape or form like the movie as a whole. You know, the movie is... So it comes three years after Damien Omen 2. 
and clearly Omen 2 was not successful, so plans of this grand film series has, has fallen apart. But somebody somewhere said, we've got this franchise, what do we do with it? So now we're going to make this third film. If Omen 2 was uninspired, I'm not even sure there's an ounce of inspiration in this film. And watching this, I really felt like I was watching it for a first time. I remembered nothing about the movie. And I think that speaks volumes. Because when I had seen it before, I didn't, I didn't hang on to anything. I, I saw it, and then I cleansed myself of it, and I moved on. Upon this, this this will probably be probably my third time seeing it. Um, so you know that's happened to me twice now, where I've seen it and I've I've wiped it out of my memory. I think there's maybe a few elements that make sense and that I enjoy. There are some things that downright aggravated me about this movie, with the writing and and the overall execution, but the writing, the script itself. That I'll, I'll get, you know, we'll get to that point. But now there's parts of this film that I really, I, I just like, oh, this is horrible. What were they thinking? The movie starts and it's the, the they're digging in the rubble of the Thorne Museum from Chicago that played into to Damien Omen 2. And I didn't really understand what that was at first. And you notice how they had sort of the conveyor belt and there was yeah. stuff come out. That made me think assembly line. And I thought, wow, what a way to start this movie because it seems like an assembly line movie. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really good analogy, yeah, yeah. What were some of the things that, that you thought were bad? One of the... Well, okay, so we'll start off with Sam Neill. I like Sam Neill as an actor. Um, I like him in Jurassic Park. I thought his little cameo in Thor Ragnarok as the actor playing Odin, I thought that was fun. You know, I've seen him in other movies, and and I enjoy him as an actor. He's he's not my go-to, but I think he does good work. He had been acting for about ten years at this point, so this is not his debut film. And arguably, yeah, you could say it's early on in his career, but I think he he comes across in this film very poorly. I don't think he could really act very well in this movie. Whether that was just where he was at as an actor at that point whether it was the script, whether it was his inspiration or lack thereof at the time of making it, I wasn't convinced that he was the Antichrist at any time. He didn't come across to me as particularly evil. And when he's like addressing his his acolytes or whatever you want to call them, he was chewing up the scenery. He was hamming it up. He was overacting. I was, you know, I felt like I was watching a bad guy on, on, you know, wrestling on Monday night. I'm going to get the bad, you know, the good guy. I don't know. It just, I just wasn't convinced at any point that, that this is, is the, the Antichrist. I thought that it was more convincing in the first two films. The Vatican hit squad that goes after him, they are the keystone cops of the <laughs> Antichrist world. They were horrible. They were the dumbest, most inept group of, of assassins. Well, and and I'm sorry, but let me interject here. What happened to the the method of killing Damien with the seven daggers? How come one can do it now? Exactly, yeah. So that goes to the poor writing. I thought the same thing. Oh, that's convenient. Now we can get him with one. And I'm like, all right, so, so you know, 
The Antichrist has been on Earth now for 32 years. The daggers have been rediscovered. And so now, first off, do they not think to look in the rubble of the building for the daggers, you know, how many years earlier? It's like, come on. And now they, they've, it's chained up. One dagger will kill, okay. None of these, these, and they're not all priests, but individuals of the Vatican hit squad, none of them had training. I get that, but come on. They, lack of common sense. So the bridge sequence, right? So you've got Damien Thorne on the bridge, you gotta know if you're if you're if you're sent to kill the Antichrist, you you, you should have like some basic one oh one facts, right? He can control animals. So I'm gonna ride a horse, you know, and I'm gonna get on one end of the bridge and I'm gonna close that gate because by gosh, he's not gonna get away from me. And then you stay on the horse once your horse starts acting weird. I'm sorry, but my butt would have been off the horse in the first case. Then, you know, the other end of the bridge, you've got the other group of Mutt and Jeff who, okay, there's a pack of dogs standing in front of me, and this is the Antichrist who, again, can control people and animals. They should have gotten that information. If they didn't, somebody didn't do their homework. And then they, he stands there and moves forward. It's like, I'm going to take on everybody with this one dagger. And then, oh, there's a shock surprise. He can't make it back to his car before the dogs attack him. I'm like, you know, clearly, I mean, he's got security. I get that. But don't you think at some point that you could have made a running leap at him and, and done a better job at stabbing him? Than, and then, oh, okay, so we're at the television studio. I'm going to get in the rafters 5,000 feet away from where he is, and I'm going to take a flying leap <laughs> off the rafters. Why not just stay on the ground and put a headset on or something or and get in a position and then, you know, get close enough and take a, a running leap at him? You have a better chance of getting him then than you would be flying up in the rafters. I, every one of them, not a surprise. They all get dispatched relatively easy. And, you know, uh, it's like the, the two guys that, that get tricked into going into the little hole in the ground. I'm like, really? <laughs> uh, you know, you, you know, and they're shocked and surprised that they killed one of their own. It's like, I'm going to hide behind this rock and I'm going to get him. Oh, shock, surprise. He didn't look the same, but he looked, but he looked. I really is like so inept. I, I it, it aggravated me so much. And I'm going to blame that on Andrew Birkin, the scriptwriter coming up with such a horrible script who really when you look at his career what else did he do name of the road which is a great movie have which you ever seen that movie. I love yeah that. i have but not a lot of other films right, right so you know he's kind of a one trick pony he had this one film you know that that's a great film beyond that he didn't have a whole lot at least you know in the the cinematic world that really um, was of any you know any you know recognition worth of any recognition so well, you know, when there's errors like this in films, you know, at some point, I wonder, like, why doesn't somebody in the studio, when they're looking at the script, say, okay, but why are these guys so inept? You know, why shouldn't they be, are they all wearing red shirts, you know? Are they, are they just being lambed to the slaughter? I don't know. I Maybe I'm over go, you know, playing that, but it, to me, it, that was a huge point. I'm like, every time they popped up, I'm like, they don't stand a chance, because it's, why not wear the red shirt Raise the white flag and like, hello, I'm over here and I'm going to kill you. It made no sense. 
Yeah. So one of the things that it attempts to do is be a little different. It isn't so much focused on, you know, Damien himself, his evolution or his acceptance of what he is, but it's really focused on the second coming of Christ. And that, you know, then Damien, at least in this one, has a specific mission. You know, he's got leading to this battle with the Nazarene that he's got to win. So that that was a little different angle. And I kind of liked that angle. I mean, there's the, the celestial event, the three stars coming together. Here's my question, though, and I don't know my Bible that well, but I always thought that the Antichrist and the second coming of Christ were at the same time, that they like were born at the same time and kind of grew up. Whether that's true or not, I think that would have been a better concept. What if Damien's older and he suddenly feels a disturbance in the force and, oh, that's because growing up parallel to him somewhere in the world has been Jesus and they then come together for their battle. I think that would have been more interesting than well, him. Well, it would have made more sense because so the, the the Nazarene is born at the you know at the same time that you know I mean the whole movie's taking place. There's not a, a large gap of time, yet at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, Jesus pops up. At the end is that I mean I didn't know what that was. That was, at the that end. was yeah that was supposed to represent Jesus, a full grown. But yeah, that which doesn't make sense. It's like okay, so he's a baby. He's come back as a baby, and you know I'm getting into to religious territory, so I'll tone it down. But I'm just like, okay, if he comes back as a baby, yet then materializes as an adult, which is what we see in the film, you know, then why did he have to come back as a baby? At, at, he's already been on Earth once before. I never got out of the Bible that the second coming was going to be that he was going to come back as a baby. That because he's already lived that life and he's no longer, you know, having to live the life as a human. When he was, you know, crucified on the cross, he, you know, resurrected and went to heaven. So when he comes back, he doesn't have to start over at square one. And if he does, then how come, you know, weeks later he pops up as an adult? And I couldn't. That just didn't seem to make sense to me. And I couldn't tell what that was. I mean, there was a lot of light. I thought it was like an angel floating in the air. I. It's such so muddy. The photography is so horrible. But I'll I'll say it. You know, I'm hope I'm not offending anyone. But uh, you ever seen the Book of Mormon? I know. Okay, so the Book of Mormon is is certainly if you're religious, is not something you want to see. It's written by the guys who did South sure. Park, right? And so, and, and during the play, Jesus pops up, and and it's the one of the voices from South Park, and Jesus pops up and says, "You know, I'm Jesus." I thought that when this scene came on, <laughs> it's like there's Jesus. I'm like, I'm Jesus. And I'm like, it just it was done so poorly. There was no. Well, and talk about anticlimactic. It was. It was this three movies you've built up that this the Antichrist, and he's so easily dispatched. Oh, so easily, and the person that does it has it has no meaning to his. No. Uh, no. Yeah, it's like, and that's the path why I talked about earlier that there's the payoff, right? Ultimately, you get to the end of this journey, and you're like, that's that's it. I've I've sat through six hours of movies because most of these are uh, oh yeah fifty minutes yep. right I mean they're not they're not B movies in that regard they're they're a full hour and fifty minutes so I've sat through almost you know six hours and that's it okay and then we're gonna throw up some scripture at the end of the film here's a, here's a quote oh that's not enough let's do another quote it seemed like 
there was the loose plot thread of of Kate Reynolds, which is picked up upon so loosely in Omen Four, because Damien has a I don't call it romantic, but has has uh, an evening of fun with Kate Reynolds, and she already has a son who almost becomes like Damien Jr. at one point, easily influenced by Damien into doing his bidding, and does become one of his acolytes. But, you know, what happened that night results in a, spoiler alert, child that we see in Omen 4 that's never really said that point, you know, black and white. So, I mean, that we're not going to talk about Omen 4 here, but... You know, we, we did contemplate kind of covering that film, and I didn't get a copy from you in time. So, and honestly, after this third film, <laughs> I, I don't know that I would have been up to watch a fourth one. I, I will probably watch it at some point. You gave the copy to me, and I, I, I am curious on that film. It was made for TV, I think, what, 91? So it's made like 10 years later. Um, and it definitely... It's obviously a sequel, but it doesn't specifically say Damien and Kate had a daughter... It doesn't really explain what happened to her parents. It's just that she's the the new Antichrist, which I didn't know there was more than one Antichrist. Again, I'm not. I've never read the Bible cover to cover, but I didn't realize that you know when the Antichrist screws up the first time, it was like, oh, hang on, here's version 2.0. We'll get it better the second time. To me, again, that's that's a, a nice little plot, you know, thing that doesn't quite work for me. So I have a but question. That's a loose thread though in this film. It's yeah. like you got that they're building toward this relationship. They obviously have sex and then nothing happens. But you know, it certainly leaves one to wonder, well, what if and I wonder if originally they had an idea that this movie succeeded, what they were gonna do for Omen Four. to the best of my knowledge, what they eventually did for Omen Four was not, you know, an idea in eighty one. So I don't know where they would have gone after this. Let's talk about the religious aspect. I don't consider The Omen or Damien Omen 2 to be religious movies. I know that sounds stupid because it's strictly a religious plot, but they're... Do you know what I mean? I mean, I don't think of the... Like, it's not like I watched Left Behind, you know? It, it doesn't seem like a religious movie. This, I think at the end, they tried to make it that. You said with the, the double verses and the glorious music and the sun coming up over... It just... Uh, it seemed like the wrong. It seemed I felt like to be I was watching the end of like the Ten Commandments or something. Yeah, the way it ended. But 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 what I'm saying is in the first two, you don't get that. Yeah, now. good. Okay. Now, good. There's an ominous feel, and I get it. Good has triumphed over evil. But after you've watched three films of evil, 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 I expected something much more dramatic, much more you know thunderbolts and lightning, you know all this stuff going on, and ultimately it. It, it felt very, very flat for me. And again, Jerry Goldsmith's music in this film was not very inspiring compared to what he did in the original film. I, I you know, you know that music from the first film. I can't say that there's anything particularly about the second or third film that musically stands out. And he's such a great composer. We get this, this you know... Again, Ten Commandment-like, you know, everything's happy at the end of this film mode. But I, I just, I was like, I was wanting more. I was wanting a lot more. Um, and where we talked about how the cast of the second film was a pale version of the first film, this film, I feel, is a pale version of the second film. 
Um, Sam Neill, who does better work in other films, is not a William Holden, who was not a Gregory Peck. Rosano Brazzi plays DiCarlo, who's kind of the Bugenhagen, Jennings kind of, you know, character, sort of, maybe. I mean, he did other much better work in films like South Pacific, Italian Job, The Barefoot Contessa. I didn't think that this was really a great role for him. Um, you've got Don Gordon, you know, who does stuff in like Lethal Weapon and Exorcist Three, playing the character of Harvey. Lisa Harrow as Kate Reynolds, lots of TV work, Space 1999. Barnaby Holm as her son Peter, only had like three other acting jobs in his career. Some of the, the supporting cameo roles are more engaging than the main cast. Mason Adams as the president, character actor, you've seen him in a gazillion Or you've heard him, that voice is so well, distinct. exactly. He was very prominent in the 1970s on the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. He was on a lot of those episodes. You hear his voice popping up all the time. we got to give a shout-out to Hazel Court. He, the shocking look on your face. You didn't know she was in it. No. She was the champagne woman at the hunt. Oh, of course. Of course you saw her. <sighs> Uncredited. This was her last film. Hazel Court, of course, Curse of Frankenstein, Dr. Blood's Coffin, Television, Thriller, Twilight Zone. Everybody knows Hazel Court. Um, yeah, she, and this, she did this as a favor to, I believe it was the... Was it Har- Bernard or was it the director, Graham Baker? I one of, I think maybe Harvey Bernard. She did it as a favor. She was in the area. She popped up on set. I don't know what kind of a favor she did. If anybody could have done her part. Did you spot her? I did not. Mm. I didn't. I I have to go back and see if I can spot her. Oh, because I'm I, sorry. Well, I'm going to just take it for granted she was there. Exactly. Um, and, you know, another one, uh, although not big in 81, but Jeremy Bullock who, of course, is now known as Boba Fett in the Star Wars universe, had, at that point, he had just done Empire Strikes Back. Um, He was a news reporter, so he was one of the reporters that shows up at one point uh, trying to ask questions of uh, uh, probably Damien, I guess. I I mean, or maybe his assistant was asked questions, I think, at one point. But uh, anyway, the main cast was, was, I think, disappointing. Just the, the few little cameos and... Mason Adams, to me, was more engaging, which kind of speaks volumes in itself. Is that all you got for cast? That's all I've got for the cast. I don't have much for, you know, we've already talked about Andrew Birkin, uh, the writer, director, Graham Baker. Only other big thing that I saw that he did was Alien Nation. Yeah, me too. This is a little interesting thing about about, uh, Sam Neill and uh, James Mason. Actor James Mason acted as a sponsor uh, for Sam Neill. He basically went to Harvey Bernard and said, you know, this is the guy you've got to get for the role and actually paid for Sam Neill to be flown to London. They wouldn't pay for him to fly to do the, um, you know, screen the test. Screen or... test. Yeah, they wouldn't pay for him. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll see him, but we're not going to fly him here. And so James Mason had to pay out of his own pocket for him to, to go, which I thought was just kind of bizarre and I thought that uh, this is interesting so this you know it doesn't really touch much on the uh, the question of well the the Nazarene was he young or why was he old in the scene you know was that really Jesus nothing's really known about the identity of who the baby was apparently in the book 
based on the screenplay, it references that the Nazarene was born to a clan of gypsies, which is why his birth was not on record and why Damien hadn't found him yet. I think that's a fairly important plot point that might have been mentioned in the film and maybe could have added a bit more to that. We've got to find the, the child. Obviously, it plays a part at, at points in this film, but it, it's a plot it's a plot deficiency when you get the fact that supposedly Jesus shows up at the end. Putting aside the fact is why is he looking older if he's a baby? All of a sudden we're looking and then all of a sudden here it is. I think it would have been helpful to include that reference somehow. Obviously there's a lot more that was needed to introduce Jesus or, you know, the Nazarene as he's referred to in this film. There's a lot more that, that needed to be included to enhance the script. Um, and there's a lot they could have taken out because this movie runs an hour and 50 minutes, which is way too long. Obviously, you could have done the, the extensive work on the script, but that's a plot point that I found odd. You get that sometimes that things are put in books that are based on screenplays and then certain elements of the screenplay are changed or scenes are deleted. That happens all the time. This one seems an odd choice why they would take it out. Well, they make the, the subplot of perhaps... Damien's right-hand man has just had a baby and that that might be Jesus. And I don't, I can't decide if, oh, that would have been a clever twist if, you know, who's the closest person to Damien and, you know, his... Yeah. I I don't know. That's one of the things I can't decide if I like or not, but it doesn't really go anywhere. I mean, at one point, Damien threatens to kill. Well, I guess they kind of do take that further. But something about this, and you talk about a script and crazy things, so you've got Damien's right-hand man, and Damien's threatening to kill his son, and in the heat of the dramatic moment, this right-hand man says, for God's sake, or no, no, he says, for the love of God. If you're Satan's (laughs) minion, would you say for the love of God? I thought the same thing. It's like... (laughs) Is it one of those, just to pull an analogy and get a, a minorly political, you know, probably some people in the White House today is like, you know, they're working for someone that they probably don't really support, but it's a job. And so they're just kind of like, all right, I'll drink the Kool-Aid. I'll collect my paycheck. I'm going to ride out the storm. I'm still going to be around. And this guy's going to move on to something else in another two, three years. Maybe it was that mentality. Maybe it's like, okay, I'm really not buying into everything that he's saying, but he pays really well, so yay, hail Satan. <laughs> and, you know, then when it really comes to that moment, then you're like, well, no, no, no. I, you know, I, you know, I wonder maybe how much he really did believe in what... It's one thing to order the death of children. It's another to order the death of your own child, and, and that's the kind of the, uh, the line he wasn't willing to cross. What did you think of the politics of it all? You know, they they planted from the very first movie that, and I guess from the Bible, you know, he'll grow up in the world of politics. That's how he'll infiltrate. It got a little Phantom menace to me, like with trade tariffs and stuff. I mean, they were talking about, I mean, land acquisition was a big thing from Damien Owen too that they carried through. But then there's stuff going on and someone died and over in a... I, I didn't follow all of that. That was really... Muddy, and that could have could have been really interesting. I mean, and especially in this day of age with TV shows like Homeland and things like that, if if they had focused on that and build 
built sort of a political thriller. Yeah, I think as the script was written, it comes across as very unnecessary. Yet, I agree that that's an element that you could take and rework and make it an integral part of the script. As it is, it, to me, it's it's noise in this this one. It doesn't really play much of a of a of an interesting part. You know, although it struggled to find, you know, a lot interesting in this movie as it is. But that, to me, was like, that was just noise. Yet, different script and different approach, that would have been an interesting way to, to go. Yeah, I agree. And speaking of political, let's talk about politically incorrect. Now, we talk all the time about movies that are of their age and all of that. But I'm not normally offended by that. And I just, I was a little offended by the treatment this particular um, subject got. So... Damien's going to be on his girlfriend's TV show and they go to the studio, BBC or whatever, and they're walking down the hall and there's all sorts of colorful characters going by. And apparently a a man in drag walks by. And so his right hand man turns and looks at him and then turns to Damien and say, that was a faggot. And they both laugh. And I just thought that was harsh. I mean, I... It didn't serve a purpose. I don't see what the purpose was so again why that was in the script to begin with obviously different age different time that kind of stuff is going to pop up in films but it usually serves some type of purpose in the moment here it was just like okay why you know what what's the logic behind it other than maybe the script writer that's how he acted or maybe that's what he thought how other people would act and he just thought that was just it's 1981. This is what people say. That may be why it was included. And it just is one of those random statements that wasn't meant to be anything more than just a random statement. But now stands out like a sore thumb because it's just not how we you know, speak or act now. And here's the other thing, and I don't have a gay agenda or anything, but just what if, what if Damien were gay? I mean, he's the Antichrist anti, you know, religious people would hate that. And I'm not saying that he's not. I just got, I don't know, maybe it was the, he's a little kinky. I mean, and and he goes in that dark room and he prays and it's very sinister and it's yucky and icky. And and I'm I'm not saying that's what being gay is, but I just think it would stand perfectly to reason that he would, you know, represent all things that, that good Christian people don't like. Yeah, I mean, I can see that there's, yeah, he was certainly um, a different person in that regards, you know, and I don't think that had anything to do with the the fact that he's, you know, the Antichrist. I think, you know, just who he was as a person. I mean, that, that's established, I think, even in the second film, because he's struggling with the concept of the anti- Antichrist. You take that away, he's still kind of an odd character, and obviously he had a different childhood and you throw in the element of money, which he's had. A lot of rich people are often very eccentric. So not surprising that he may bring some of that eccentric attitude into it and then kind of sprinkled with a little bit of, you know, uh, well, I'm the spawn of Satan, so I'm going to wipe blood on your face and there's nothing. I know that's a tradition that scene though comes across is, is particularly creepy where he's wiping blood on on the face of uh, what's it Peter, um, and then Peter kind of looks at him lovingly, 
but ultimately we know that you know Peter becomes one of his acolytes and is a servant of Satan. I, I don't, you know, there's just um, yeah that that I can see how that would stand out. I, I my gut is telling me that it was it wasn't meant for anything more than just maybe an, a random off you know one off statement that would have been common to hear in 1981. It's not necessarily something that, well, we don't say it now, and it's not something that can just easily blend into the woodwork. There's certain words that are going to stand out when you watch old films that that didn't stand out when they were made. Now, going on your your topic of what if Damien was, was gay, that I mean, that's an interesting take. I mean, is Damien, you know, simply because he's a male... I would think being the spawn of Satan is like you, you could probably go the proverbial both ways, right? I mean, would you be attracted only to women or would you be attracted to men? He's probably both would, or I, neither. I, I would think, yeah, I would think he's, you know, probably, I, I wouldn't think he's like asexual. I would say he's, you know, he's, he would be bisexual because he, if he isn't the spawn of Satan, he is going to have the mentality of Satan is like, any way he can get it. <laughs> Any way he can get the soul, right? So I don't care. You're, you know, his mother was a jackal, so he's come into the world already. You know, from a very interesting perspective, I don't think that that well, they wouldn't do that in 1981. That would be too much yeah, 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 to yeah. take. Interesting if they were to do a modern day version. I think that would be that would open up a lot of potential doors for you know, plot twists, you know, or a series, you know, that would be interesting to see what they would do in today's audience if they were to go that route. I, you know, not something they would do in 81. But yeah. anyway, a bit of a tangent well, there. Yeah, well, and speaking of modern takes, are, are we done with this? I think we are. You know, I'm not a fan of Omen 3. Uh, it's definitely not a film that stands on its own. It had, you know, there was potential for something better, but I think... You're, you're dealing with a, a director and a writer who just were not A-list, and they weren't even B-list, in my opinion. So they, they were dealt, uh, you know, rather... They did, they did the best they could. They, they weren't dealt a great hand. Because the production, you know, Damien Omen 2 was already a bit of a, uh, of a flop, so they could have done something better, but they did, I don't think they had the skill set. I will say a couple of little interesting things before we go... To the to the wrap up of, of the Omen story, the interesting thing that Sam Neill and Lisa Harrow, who played Kate Reynolds, actually developed an off camera relationship during this, uh, which may have been prevalent in their scene together, may have been a lot more real than not. Actually, produced a son. I don't know that they ever got married, but they had a child, and there was a, a point at one in the early part of the development of the script, they were actually going to make Damien older. And three names were considered for the part of Damien. Did you see those? No. Gene Hackman, who I can't see that at all. Marlon Brando, I can't really see that at all. This one, I it, yes, I can see, but it would have taken the film in a whole different direction. Jack Nicholson. Now, he plays the devil, right? And Doesn't he play the devil in the movie? No, that's Al Pacino. Well, which is of Eastwick, I don't yeah, which know. Which is of Eastwick, yeah. I mean, he, yeah, it's it's a, a maybe not Satan, but he plays something in that film, right? But I mean, come on. I mean, 
I, there's no way you'd make it serious if Jack Nicholson. You know, Jack Nicholson, he can play crazy, he can play evil, but there's always that little that Jack Nicholson smile that would have made the film very, 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 very different. Ultimately, they decided to go with somebody younger and went with Sam Neill. Obviously, an actor not on the same level of the other three. Probably more suited for what the role was. He just didn't have the acting gravitas in 1981 to pull it off. As far as trivia goes, that's it. I'm willing to close the book on Omen 3. Uh, me too. I do want to mention the Damien TV series that aired on A&E in uh, April of 2016. It was a 10-episode series. I watched it. I thought it was very, very good. Uh, it was well-produced. They actually used clips from The Omen to flash back to his childhood. But this is a young man, uh, Damien, who is a, photog- a news photographer, and he travels the world for that, so there's that international aspect. But he has no memory of his upbringing or who he is and he's having like a crisis crisis of conscience and uh, barbara hershey plays this i don't know the remember remember the specifics but she comes to town to you know break the news to him and to get him to accept the fact that he is who he is and of course strange things start happening and it's just very very good it was produced by glenn mazara who is uh, walking dead big wigger yeah, yeah. was and it starred bradley james he was in the merlin tv series he played arthur oh okay yeah uh, and he was also in underworld blood wars which i don't think i saw he played a character named varga but he's very charismatic uh i thought it was a great idea i was very sad they didn't bring that back to explore but to me a much better approach at at treating damien as a grown-up and coming into acceptance of who he is. So I meant to look and see if it's on iTunes. I don't know, but, or I'm sure it's on iTunes, but maybe on Netflix or something. But but check that out. Uh, I, I highly recommend it. I didn't even know that this series existed, but 2016 was kind of a blur for me in a lot of ways, so I probably missed it during that point. I should also probably mention briefly that there was a remake of The Omen in 2006. <laughs> With Lee Schreiber. I've never seen it. Never had a desire to see it. I have seen it. I went and saw it in the theaters. Hated it. But I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm compelled after we've watched these to, to kind of revisit that. And here's why. You look at the cast. Like, Liev Schreiber is basically the Gregory Peck character. You know, I complain that Gregory Peck is too was too old for the part. Well, here's, you know, a fantastic actor, Liev Schreiber younger more maybe suited to it i i i don't remember i kind of would like to see the thing i didn't like it about it is probably the most word for word shot by shot remake i've ever seen as far as remakes go and people dog it for that but this was during the the big writer's strike and they didn't have a lot of new material and so you know why not pull the script i i don't know i i mean it's not good but I do kind of want to revisit it. I know it's not going to have the style of the omen and or the feeling, but just I'd, I'd kind of I'd like to revisit what the different actors do with the parts. You know, I I don't have an interest in it. Modern day remakes I struggle with because sometimes it's like if the original is so good, I, you know I don't see the need to try to remake it. 
unless you're going to take a different approach. Right. Which this and if this does a, if this is a you know shot for shot remake, then in my mind, I'll go back to the original. I mean, anything to say in in summary? I I mean, I think we're in total agreement. Love the first one. It goes downhill from there. Uh, as a franchise, you know, as as bad as you know those sequels are, you're kind of compelled to have them. I mean, you want the trilogy, you want it there, whether you watch it or not. I had it in a box set. You have it in a box set. I don't know. It kind of. How would you like summarize it as a package? You know. You can watch the first film and be done, and you're fine. It, yes, it leaves the, the open of, well, what's Damien going to do next? But what Damien does next <laughs> is not really spectacular. And what you can imagine is far superior to what Exactly, and the payoff, ultimately, in the third film is, is disappointing. So I think, um, you know, if you're a completist, sure, you're going to want to watch at least the first three films... And I'm going to visit the fourth one at some point out of curiosity. But I think this suffers of what a lot of franchises do, is that they just get progressively worse with each film after. And not as bad as some, not as as, as good as others. So I think it's, as a trilogy, it, it sits kind of in the middle. The second and third films certainly drag down the overall effect. So if you only, you know, if you stop with the first one, I think you're going to be fine. The second one is 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 a it's not horrible it's just ultimately disappointing if you really feel the need i think the first two films play off each other much better than the third film which seems almost to be like in a different world for me you can stop it too if you feel compelled stop it too and just be done with it at that point and i guess we should say i mean if you haven't seen the original omen by all means, see it. It is a oh, classic, a classic. Yeah, and you absolutely. should see it and, you know, forget the baggage that it carries with it. Uh, it's it's one of a few movies I'd say are a must-see. I would agree. We will be right back with our regular features, and we will hammer this dagger in. Not since King Kong has a screen exploded with such mighty fury and spectacle. A year after his plane crashes in the jungle, Dr. Charles Decker returns to England with a chimpanzee named Conga, and a theory that he has discovered an evolutionary link between plant and animal life. With a serum that causes Conga to grow in size, Decker hypnotizes the creature and uses it to remove anyone who stands in the way of him receiving recognition and glory for his experiments. We're back with our new business and our regular features. Maybe a little brief this time because we are recording early and we don't have quite all the information we have for April that we might usually have at this time of the month. But let's start with some home video releases. Shout Factory continues with their Hammer releases. We have The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires from 1974. If I pause for a moment, if I may... I recently posted in several Facebook groups, I have not every, but a whole bunch of Hammer films on VHS. Of course, I will probably never watch those again. I have the same movies and more on DVD. You know, now's the time to decide, am I going to continue with the Blu-ray? I've done them here and there. My question is, does anyone want to buy a bunch of VHS hammers? Uh, I talked to one guy and... You turn into the QVC network. Uh, yes. Well, no. I, I, no. I talked to a guy on Facebook who actually offered me $100 for all of them. I think I have 39 of them. Uh, and 
eight or so of them are the uh, Hammer House of Horror that were packaged as Elvira's yeah, thriller video or whatever. So, And, you know, I started looking up. There aren't a lot of them on sale on eBay, but there's a, some of them. And, of course, there are some that are quite pricey. Those are the ones I don't have. Of course. Which, yeah. you know, would make sense. That's why they're pricey. Maybe they're not as common. But anyway, if anyone's interested, let us know on the Facebook page. I'd love to. I, I hate to just throw them away, but they got to be worth more than $100. You know, it's, yeah, that's, gosh, collecting is so tough. And, and home media is one of these things where, uh, I, I, you know, as I well know, it's like DVDs, there's just not much of a remarket for those. I mean, you're going to get a couple bucks at best if you take it to some place like Vintage Stock. There is a market, though, I think, for some of these things like, you know, Universal and Hammer VHS tapes that I think it's worth more than 100 but... I, you know, you got to find the right person who's looking for these. I mean, yeah, that you're going to find better copies on DVD and better copies on Blu-ray. You're you got to find that VHS collector who is is going to jump at the chance to to get them. Uh, and maybe a hundred dollars is is all they're worth. But my gut tells me that they're they're worth more. It'd be helpful if you get a couple of other you know people. Now that you've given out that number, everyone's going to say, <laughs> you know, well, I'll give you a hundred and one. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that, you know, if you get the feel that that's, you know, this particular set of films and these versions are only worth that, you know, then you got to ask yourself, are you ever, do you really, are you right. going to miss them? Well, the thing, I mean, they are collectible, I feel, because the art on some of them is art that has never been used elsewhere. And, you know, the boxes alone, if you are into the art and, you know, it's a, to be a completist of Hammer and to have it. I, I do regret getting rid of my Universal VHS tapes. I mean, I had not all... But I had a lot, and you know, some of them were early versions. Like uh, I had Bride of Frankenstein before it had the new cover that matched all the other Universal releases. So it was a very plain black cover with you know just red lettering on it and a picture of the bride on it. Not very attractive. Like with some of these, like with Frankenstein, that version I had of Frankenstein was kind of like that middle version, right? Because it had it it had like some of the restored scenes. But it still was missing that now I know what it feels like to be a god. That wasn't, that audio hadn't been found yet. So that version of Frankenstein may not be the version that's the complete version. But I think that for me as a collector, there's there's something about having, well, this, this was the version I grew up with. It's kind of like with Star Trek. I don't have the Blu-rays on, of the classic series on, uh, or the classic series on Blu-ray, because that's not... They look better than what I grew up watching. I'm happy with my original DVDs, or I guess even that. I, the DVD set I have wasn't the first ones, like the third or fourth ones that they put out. I like it with a bit of the grime, and, and sometimes I'm that way with movies too. I don't jump at the chance to get everything on Blu-ray. I'm Sometimes I'm happy with the DVD copy of it. So there's somebody out there who wants it. I would hold on to it, and eventually you'll find someone. And if, no, if nothing else... If you know that this is, it's getting a good home, and you've held on to it, you're not doing anything with it. Okay, I'm not gonna, you know, these these aren't worth what I thought. You got find somebody, and like then I'm okay. Here, take this. Yeah, and it's not like I'm greedy, but I just and a hundred dollars is a hundred dollars. That's nothing to sneeze at. But I just I don't know. We'll see what happens. Sorry uh, for that brief tangent. You can contact Jeff <laughs> at. <laughs> what was our number? <laughs> uh, so 
All right. Uh, also on the ninth, the Iguana with the Tongue of Fire is coming out from Arrow. It's another Jalo. I just always like to hype Arrow because their packages are so great. Uh, that's directed by Ricardo Freda. On the 16th, we have from Shout the Manitou from 78 and Grave of the Empire. Grave of the Empire. Grave of the Vampire from 1972. Have you seen either of those? I have not. I uh, watched. No, hang on a second. Grave of the Vampire. Who's in that? Is somebody named Pataki? I remember. Yes, I have because, seen that. Okay, yeah, I okay. I have too. It, I I kind of liked yeah, it. I rated yeah. it a, a seven on IMDb. Uh, the Manitou I have seen when it came out. It's been a long time. I don't remember particularly liking it. I don't want to buy it, but I'd I'd like to see it. Doesn't it? Have, who's in that? Isn't it? Uh... Tony Curtis to see in that for some reason. Maybe it's the it's like an Indian slant yeah. on the the speaking of seventies occult. Yeah, I had it on my my DVR more than once. It popped up on uh, Turner Classic Movies for a while, uh, but I never watched it. Yeah, and I'm, I didn't mean to say I should have said Native American version of The Exorcist and all of that. But it's just it's very and it reminds me of The Brood also because this thing demon grows on her shoulder, and then yeah. it's very gory when it comes yeah. out. So anyway. And then also, I've been looking forward to this. Master of Dark Shadows is coming out from MPI. That's a new documentary about Dan Curtis, the creator of Dark Shadows. What's Dark Shadows again? Um, let's see. I'm trying to. How can I connect it to Doctor Who so you'll understand? Uh, <laughs> no, I'm looking forward to that documentary. Yeah, that should, as well. that should be good. I, you know, I may not have seen the entire run, but I. It's a series I'm fascinated with, and I think that uh, looks like it's going to be great. Yeah. On 23rd is something that I'm seeing a lot of discussion about. It's the Boris Karloff Bella Lugosi collection. Four movies on Blu-ray from Shout Factory. Which has just changed its name. It has? Yes. What I is saw it? this yesterday. They've renamed it and they're repackaging it. So it's been, I think, delayed. It's called the Universal Horror Collection Volume 1. Oh, there's, that means there's going to be a volume two, which yes. means we've got to buy it because it's going to be the Vincent Price collection all over again. Probably, yeah. So, <sighs> the, yeah. So there's the same movies though. Uh, the same movies there, and they said all the extras and everything is the same. This the the, the packaging is going to be different. So it's now rather than calling it Boris Karloff Lugosi, it's Universal Horrors Volume One or Universal oh. Horrors Collection Volume One. That just I just saw that on Facebook yesterday. Wow, this, I so. did not see that. So there is more on the way. All right, so that's Invisible Ray, Black Cat, The Raven, and Black Friday. And I have to say, every time I did, we talk about, I don't really know what Shout Factory does to it, blah, blah, blah. But I did recently watch The Mole People, their release of that. Well worth it. So it, it gives me hope for some of these others uh, that they they put out. I guess they do a good job of restoring, and, and there's bonus features, so... I have hopes for that one, and especially now that you've told me that name change. We also have from Kino Lorber the same day, The Land Unknown from 1957, and The Strange Door from 1951. And for what I swear is every other month, a new release of Scream and Scream Again from 1970, the Vincent Price movie. This is from Kino Lorber also. I did look up, just to, to satisfy my sanity... This does have a new commentary with Tim Lucas, and it includes both a United States and UK cut of Scream and Scream Again. I won't say I was suckered, but this movie came out on Twilight Time, and you know how their movies are limited release, and I felt pressure to buy it. Well, here's coming out a version that I may rather have. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's sometimes when the that stuff comes out. I, I had a dilemma this past week. Uh, I've been getting a lot of the Cadabra Records uh, Bleak December productions with um, Anthony Mann's uh, work, and they had put out actually. The previous week, they had put out the Canterville Ghost, which had previously only been on MP3, uh, and now it was going out on vinyl, and that has Colin Baker from Doctor Who involved in it. And I ultimately it was like it was going to be a limited release, so if I wanted it, I was going to have to get on right away. But you know, those are thirty-two dollars each, and pricey for a record, I I think, but great quality, and I've got quite a few. I had to walk away from it, and it did sell out. So, you know, I, you know, now I'm like, ah, maybe I should have done it. And retrospect, a week later, they put another release out. And if, well, if you got the Canterville Ghost, you get 10% discount or something. And, you know, like, well, no, I'm not going to get this. So, you know, yeah, you, you, sometimes you sit there and you hem and haw and ultimately you regret, you know, and, and these, these limited releases. But sometimes waiting and something else comes along and you're like, okay. You know, maybe it was worth the wait. Ah, Richard's showing me the cover for that Universal Horror Collection. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's using original artwork, which I think is cool. Maybe not the most... Is it original? I mean, are those the movie posters? That's the movie posters. Oh, original, not original created now, no, but original no, 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 from sorry, the... No, it's yeah, the yeah, using yeah. the original poster artwork, which I'm a big fan of. Uh, I think yeah. I think we've there was a period of time when that was kind of the norm... And then all of a sudden now we've gone to these. Sometimes the covers are fine. I like original poster artwork, and I think that so they use that for the cover, and it looks it looks nice. And I'm like, oh, that, you know. And then you get volume two, and there's volume three. That's going to look awful nice. I'm tempted on this one. I have these on DVD in a nice set and a nice package. This is tempting. Shout Factory mm-hmm. continues to. To tempt me, and I've resisted on Hammer, and because now, but see, now I'm regretting that I've resisted because now, <laughs> now that I'm like 30 films in, and I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah, I, you think you now kinda, I'm to play catch up. Now I'm like, well, it's going to cost me $300 to get everything they put out. So. You, you wish you kind of knew ahead of time what the plan was. I mean, if they've somehow bought the entire per- library of Hammer and are going to be releasing them, you'd get in earlier. Because that was my thought exactly in the beginning. It's like, well, they're only going to put two or three yeah. out. And then, you know, so I'll, you know, it's not going to be, and now I'm like, oh, no. No, they're putting everything out. So Shell Factory does it does it well. I mean, they, they are one of the top, in my mind, I think they're one of the top and most consistent. There's other companies that have popped up and have done some good, releases you know I've, I've been pleased with a couple of releases from raro films but i've seen nothing else from them shell factory has earned everyone's respect and earned their money and they're knocking it out of the park so i i do wish i would have i would have known what the end game was on hammer because i would have gotten in on it uh as soon as the first release came out and now i'm like okay i need to win the lottery or something because i really i want all those at back releases and then on the 30th, Tarantula, again from Shout Factory, 1955. I'm going to skip birthdays for now, and we'll end up with those. Uh, jump to anniversaries, just a couple real quick. Speaking of Dark Shadows, April 2nd of 1971 was when the final episode aired. April 3rd, 1968, Planet of the Apes saw a wide release. It had played in New York and Los Angeles before that, but its wide release was 
uh, on April 3rd. And then April 7th of 1933, similar thing with King Kong. It had premiered in different cities, but it had a wide release on April 7th. April 12th, 1940, Black Friday. I mentioned that just because it is one of the movies in that box set we were just talking about. TV Terror Guy, don't have much. Again, we're recording early. We only know the first week for Sven on the 6th is going to be House of Dracula. Which, by this point, we'll probably have... This will come out yeah, after this. It, so. Yeah, it was on two days ago. So by uh, the time you're hearing this, you probably know all of April, but yeah. we don't know it at this point. Yes. But they are doing... They've done some new stuff. I, I just watched 4D Man last week. I had seen that once before, but he is throwing still some new stuff in there, which I think is fun. Uh and mixing it in with some of the old stuff. So you never know what you're going to get from week to week. TCM is... Eh, I'm losing my faith. They aren't showing many horror movies except one day, April 24th. And it's it's just stuff we've seen already. Devil Bat, Killer Shrews, The Fly, Corpse Vanishes, Brain That Wouldn't Die, Young Frankenstein. Other than that day, they're showing Cat People twice that month and M twice that month i have noticed they're starting to do that more and more not a lot but they are starting to show films twice even within the same 24 hours films that'll be playing late night on a tuesday will end up playing again the following day i mean come on they've got a huge massive library with a gazillion films i don't care how good a movie is there's no reason to to do the duplication like that I love TCM, but they've gotten lazy. They really have. And I know that they've got stuff in their library that they just don't show with great regularity. And other films they're just showing with regularity. I think they'd be better off coming up with like just a different strategy and how they're playing their, their classic horror films and playing things that we haven't seen. You know, that I, I don't care if it's a little rough around the edges. I you know put a disclaimer or something on it. You know that they've got access to some of the universal films that never get seen. You know they've got access to some of the library. They can get access to stuff like, you know the the mystery of Edwin Drood, which you know they played once before but rarely play, or like the Mad Doctor of Market Street or the Dark Streets of Cairo. You know any of those films that just just don't get played that often. I don't I. I it, I get irritated sometimes. I'm like, oh, there's so much more. Dig it out, you know. And not just horror movies, comedies too. I mean, they, oh yeah. There's so much that you know they trickle every once in a while. Something from Laurel and Hardy. You've got so much they could play from Laurel and Hardy or um, Little Rascals, which I know they've got access to all those MGM shorts, and they've got access to like the Popeye cartoons, which I watched just watched one this morning. I don't know why they don't do it more. Anyway. And I wish I had a dollar for every time they play Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, because they're playing it again in April. And I still haven't seen that movie. Ever? I, You know, I think I saw bits and pieces a long time ago. Psycho biddies, exploitation. I say it every time. We need to do that. So we need to make a commitment, because we, we were just talking about what are we doing next month, which we've got lined up. But I think... Yes, we, we need to just commit that at some point in 2019, Psycho Biddy Month is going to happen. So we've got a few months that we've got planned out, some that we don't. Maybe I need to put that on my DVR and have it sitting there because I don't own it. So maybe that's what I need to do. You when- can borrow my DVD. I own it. <laughs> 
All right, back to birthdays. Real quick, I just picked out four. January 1st. I assume I meant April 1st of 1883, Lon Chaney. April 4th, 1932, Anthony Perkins. April 5th, 1926, Roger Corman. I think all three of those well worth mentioning on this show. Absolutely. And finally, April 22nd, 1894, Rondo Hatton. I mentioned him, we mentioned last time that we were breezing through the Rondo nominations. They had just been announced. This is the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. Happens every year. Nominations have been announced. I wanted to just go through a few. We have, isn't it great to say you like we have friends that are nominees? It, it that is. is really cool. I a few, we still got time to nominate. So listen to what what Jeff is going to yeah. be sharing because as, even as as we record this, we're a ways off. But as we air this, You'll you're going to be down to your last week and a half. April twentieth is the deadline. So um, if you're listening to this when we get it out in April. You're down to your last week and a half, two weeks maybe, um, to, to get your vote in. So, Jeff, take it away. Yeah, these are just a few I want to mention and a couple things, too. Like, for example, this year they have split out some of the categories, which I think they must have listened to us. I believe we recommended that. But, like, now instead of just a best film category, they have a best film category and a best fantasy or action film category. So that at least helps sort of segregate and maybe give two people a chance to win. Uh, I want to mention that one of the best commentary nominees is Troy Howarth. He did a nominee, excuse me, a commentary for Zombie. We talked about last time we had seen its 4K restoration. He's also nominated for his book, Human Beasts, the Film of Paul Nashi. So congratulations, Troy, double nominee, uh, you got my vote on commentary. Book of the Year is a tough one. We'll get to that in a minute. But I do have that book, and and I haven't read all of it, but it it really is good. And Paul Nashie is an area where I'm I'm very much in need of more information, and uh, yeah, it's it's something definitely you know Book of the Year. There's a lot of competition, but I will definitely say, does it need to be added to your library? Absolutely, and he's very prevalent on on film um, uh, commentaries because it seems like he's always popping up on the Facebook feed where more's coming. So he's uh, he's a name that's uh, well worth getting nominated. Yeah, and I, I hear his voice on a lot of commentaries. The the Giallo that I've watched sometimes from Arrow, he does a commentary now and then, and uh, it's just a comforting voice. He's knowledgeable. I, I think it's great. He's well worth the nomination. Best Independent Film, and I believe this is also a, a split out, so it gives nominees like uh, our friend Christopher R. Mims, Guns of the Apocalypse. You know, they're not going up against us or something, you know, a, a big budget motion picture. Definitely, sadly, I still have not watched it, but it's on the top of my stack. I'm going to watch it in the next couple days. The book category I mentioned, uh, besides Human Beast, we have uh, The Dr. Fibes Companion by Justin Humphreys. is a book I own. Fantastic. I love me some Dr. Fibes, so very glad that that was nominated. Screaming for Pleasure, How Horror Makes You Happy and Healthy by Scott Bradley. Uh, that's another book I purchased, mostly based on a review that a friend of mine on Facebook, John Kitley, reviewed. He has Kitley's Crypt. It sounded great. There's a little bit of psychology about horror movies, plus he talks about the movies. That's a great book. And then we, you and I, Richard, know from the Kansas City Film Cer- 
Film Critics Circle, Michael A. Smith, huge Jaws fan. Uh, he wrote a book, Jaws 2, The Making of a Hollywood Sequel. Yeah, that's that's awesome. We've got somebody here in Kansas yeah. that's been nominated. Best magazine, I have to, to mention my friends at We Belong Dead uh, from the UK. Great magazine. It's also, nom- well, it is nominated. Issue number 20 for Best Cover by Mark Maddox. Uh, I had forgotten. <laughs> it's in- I-, I-, I looked at the pictures. They showed the pictures on the website, and I saw it. It's from The Thing. The Thing from Another World, the original and I know, oh, that's Mark's. And I remember hearing about it. He really went to hard work on that to get the texture of the, the jacket right and all of that. And, and, and that was my vote. And then I go, oh, yeah, that was in We Belong Dead. So I doubt the way the Rondos go that We Belong Dead will actually win Best Magazine. But I think the cover has got a chance. And everyone knows Mark Maddox. You, His work is amazing. Yeah. yeah and absolutely. I think he's nominated for one other cover, I believe. And I think this is the better of the two. So I'm pulling for Mark on that. Best interview. actually have two friends that are nominated. Uh, Rod, I don't know if it's Labby or Laby or Lab or Lab, L-A-B-B-E. Had a great interview with John Carlin that was in Scary Monsters. And then our friend Sam Irvin did his interview with Cassandra Peterson, Elvira, that was in Scream? Yes. Yes. So both of those are, are worthy. Sam, a big winner last year. Rod, I know, is many times nominated. Don't believe he's he's won. John Carlin is one of the more interesting actors from Dark Shadows as he has uh, come into old age. And uh, this might be a good one for, for Rod to win this year. So good luck to you. Mentioned John Kitley earlier. He's nominated again for Best Column. They came from The Crypt. That's in Horror Hound magazine. Great column every month. Does two movies with uh, some type of connecting tissue. I don't know if John's ever won, but deserving whether he has or not. Best website. A little place called Classic Horrors Club. Richard, I'm tooting my own horn. This is probably the only time I'm going to say it. But yes, my website has been nominated and I would really love your vote. I work hard. I think it provides something unique. I think it fits the criteria for a, a, a Rondo Award. And all I can ask is pay it a visit if you like it, if you think it's worth it. Definitely the uh, grassroots type website. No money behind it. It's whatever I can do myself. But yeah, but it's um, a well put together site, and you you make an effort to try to get something out there multiple times a week. You know, it, it, maybe not every single day, seven days a week, but you're doing different things, not just mm-hmm. posts. You're doing you know the newspaper headlines, which stump me more times than I <laughs> care to admit. You know, and the and the TV terror guide. You do a lot of different things. To, to keep the site very active. So, you know, certainly well, well-deserved. Absolutely. Well, thank you. And I hope you're proud of me. That's probably the most I've ever said about it. And I'm not going to say another word I'm the whole time. Very, but <laughs> very proud, yes, because you don't brag, you brag on yourself enough. So Okay. Uh, best multimedia. This is a, a weird one. I don't know why they don't just call it podcast. But if you don't find it in your heart to write in this very podcast, which you can do, as Richard mentioned, Monster Kid Radio. You got to go with Derek. I mean, he's he's. I, our mentor in podcasting and he's the podcast standard right? yeah and, the gold standard we only can aspire to be like Derek and he he is consistent week in and week out so with that yes we'd be honored to to receive your votes we'd be honored 
in Florida, if we would actually were to, you know, to get, you know, nominated some year and eventually win. But Monster Kid Radio, by far, yeah, no competition as far as it's concerned. Now, you know, no disrespect. There's others on there that are certainly well worth the nomination. I think B-Movie Cast is still on there as a nomination, which, uh, you know, I know they don't do episodes on a regular basis. I, you know, but they, they're still, you know, plugging away and getting that site, you know, getting the, the podcast out there. Yeah, I got to give a special shout out to Derek. I sometimes have a stigma of someone who's already won and like, well, we should give someone else a chance, you know. But I don't know. If you've got the best, why not, you know, be a multiple winner? And, and if you haven't listened to Monster Kid Radio in a while, which I can't imagine that you haven't, but it. He's evolved. He's added some things this year. He's got some regular features. I love Kenny's Famous Monsters of Filmland. Yeah. He now has uh, the guy from Dr. Tongue's Something Collectibles doing a toy thing. You know, his wife Brenda's now part of Feedback. And it's he's added and he's bringing... It, it's not all Derek. He brings people, gets involved, his guest every week. It's a representative of Monster Kid's everywhere not just his focus or his uh, opinion uh, it's well, i, I kind of think of it like the the horror host you know a lot of people miss fanguli has won for a lot of years look there's a lot of great great horror hosts out there um Spanguli has been doing it for a long time he is probably the most visible because he's on me tv national television network i think he's well deserved of getting that recognition just because somebody's won once doesn't mean they're not worthy of winning two, three, four, five times. You know, as long as as you know the voting is fair and, and the recognition is is deserved, I think, you know, in um, in Derek's case, absolutely. Um, and I would say, just kind of going with the horror host. I mean, Svenguli, you know, brings something to the table. I think, you know, I don't know how much he has to say as far as what movies are selected, but. They, they've gone beyond the universal classics that they were kind of playing ad nauseum, which are great, but it's nice to see things like the 4D man thrown in for good measure or House of Wax coming up. A few things that, you know, are new to the mix. Not every movie can be an Ants, but, you know, you get some of these, these obscure things. Even Ants, I was like, yeah, absolutely, throw it on there. It's something different. I like that. Um, a lot of the horror hosts out there... While they may be great, they're they're doing the same public domain films. Their production values are rough around the edges, and so you know Svenguli has, has earned his nomination and, and his multiple victories. Derek has earned it as well. So I don't think we should cheat them simply because they've won before. Doesn't mean they they can't win again. Yeah, and you think of Svenguli, he brings um, what are we calling people these days? Normies, uh, people that aren't you know yeah. like into it. He's introducing those people to these classic horror films, and that is a huge thing. He's keeping it going, you know? We, we've talked many times about, you know, one day these stars are going to be gone and no one's going to care about these movies and blah, blah, blah. He'll bring new audiences to it, and that's a, a worthy achievement. Well, I think Sci-Fi Saturday Night's probably their, their top night of the week, and there's, there's a reason for that. Yeah, I mean, it's mainstream, and... You've got a major network playing horror movies on a Saturday night at 7 o'clock. That's amazing. The last one I wanted to mention, and I'm taking Derek's cue here. I never really know who to vote for the Monster Kid Hall of Fame, but Derek will usually propose someone. He makes a good case for it. Listen to 
to MKR, he'll tell you, but he's he's pushing for Kyle Yount, who is the creator of the Kaiju cast. And apparently, uh, I've listened to a couple episodes, but apparently he's calling that to a close. And I, I think he's got, uh, it's evolving somehow into something else, but just a good time to recognize him for everything he's done uh, with his podcast. Now, and this is the, the Monster Kid Hall of Fame or just the Monster Hall of Fame? Monster Kid Hall of Fame. Monster Kid Hall of Fame. Yeah, okay. not Monster Kid of the Year. So, but it's the Monster Kid Hall of Hall Fame. Hall of Fame. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, again, horrible, horrible sales job on that. But, but Derek can tell you all about it, and I take his word for it. it Derek is Derek's a, a uh, trustworthy source. So, I, it, for lack of any anyone else, that sounds horrible. But uh, well, Kyle Yount. There is somebody that else that I will say oh, yeah? to consider. It. And which is he's not in there, which is a, a travesty. Is Raku Browning? Yes. How can he not be in there, folks? He is alive and with us. Let's not let him pass before he gets that recognition. When you look, the fact that Julie Adams and Ben Chapman are in there, and he is not. I'm sorry, something's wrong. Right? He needs to be recognized while he's still with us. So I know multiple people get in every year. It's not just one person. So, you know, um, you know, Kyle sounds like, you know, and absolutely if it gets the if it gets Derek's recommendation, absolutely. Another one is is Riku Brownie. Um, yeah, and he gets out and around, he's still, still doing, making conventions yes. and all that. Let's say thank you, man. That's great that you do that for us. Let's give him an award. <laughs> Let's not wait till he passes to say, oh gosh, we should have got him in. He's with us now. Let's let's, you know, Get that award to him, and so he knows that that you know his work is recognized. I mean, he knows that by going to the conventions. But uh, it amazes me and puzzles me as to why he hasn't been input yet. I mean, why why Ben Chapman and Julie Adams, but not Riku Browning? I don't know. That's puzzling, and I hope that he gets in this year. Yeah. So that's all I had to say. Do you have anything to add on the Rondos? I guess we should tell people how to vote. It's a bit old school. You gotta, you know. It's essentially done via email. They've got the ballot up on their site, rondoawards.com. You kind of have to do a little bit of copying and pasting and, and doing it via email. I wish that they would update that and enter the, the 20th century or 21st century. But uh, until that happens, go old school, uh, do the email. It's, not, it's a few extra steps. Yeah, just copy and paste copy in. And paste. I, what I do is usually copy and paste into a separate document and then just make it easy and, and easier to read than I do a copy and paste of that into an email so that there's just not a lot of extra stuff. It's just who my nominees are. So uh, with that, you know, I, I would say take the time, make the extra effort. It's worth it. Yep. Don't have to vote for everything. If you only know best website, classicors.club, <laughs> write it in and that's it. No, I'm sorry. I said two things about it. Now I feel guilty. Okay. I think that's it for new business. I, I agree. All right, then tell me what's going on uh, at your various podcasting and writing projects. Well, as I record this with you, we're, we're a few weeks away from April, but I am planning to cover The Reptile on the April edition of the Kansas City Crypt on the Mimiverse monthly audio cast in honor of Christopher R. Mim's forthcoming Queen of Snakes. We've got that coming up um, April 24th. I believe. Is it the 24th-ish? Yes. We are attending, both you and I and, and my Did wife, Did you get Carly. your tickets? 
Yes. I did too. Yes. Uh, I did, uh, no, have I you have received not, it? I have not got them in the mail yet. Oh, no. but you purchased them. But I purchased same, them. Same yeah. year. I got my Monster Bash ticket. Uh, I got the notification. I didn't get the ticket. Oh, right, 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 right. Yes, right, right, the, right. yes yep. my VIP badge is waiting for me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to be there in attendance at uh, the this premiere. As of last night, Mr. Mim has announced yet another film. He's working on... Two films now. He's just announced The Beast Walks Among Us, bringing back the kids from Danny Johnson Saves the World, which I think is a brilliant idea. He says a homage to B-movies, the films of the Mimiverse, and I'm trying to remember how he phrased it. Okay, a homage to B-movies, the films of the Mimiverse, and Scooby-Doo. I'm in, all right? I'm in. That that sounds like a lot of fun. So uh, I don't know that he has officially launched... The fundraising campaign for that, but I'm sure he will forthcoming soon. Probably wants to get Queen of Snakes out there before he starts fundraising for two films. But nonetheless, he's got ideas and he's making the films. So we'll be there at Queen of Snakes. Beyond that, uh, I'm going to do something fun on the blog in uh, April. I am going to do Martian Mondays. Every Monday in the month of April, I am going to be doing a Martian or Mars-related film. You know, I should have had the list of movies in front of me here, but I can tell you that uh, it's going to include Invaders from Mars, Flights, Flight to Mars. We've already watched uh, Mission to Mars. Going to be watching Cavewoman from Mars, the Memoverse film. And a few others, uh, Ghost to Mars or Ghost of, Ghost of Mars. That's it, yeah. I have not seen that. So a bit of modern films and, and classic films. Uh, some are going to be straightforward reviews posting on the blog. A couple of them are going to be reviews that will pop up over on Dread Media. So kind of a mix. So th- something fun for the month of April. Yeah, I like that. I had some Mars movies coming up, and I was like, you know what? Let's just do a, a Martian Monday. You also have some stuff coming up over at Dread Media. I had a chance to watch Joe Bob Briggs, which we should mention. That's something we missed. This is a nice segue. I finally watched, what is it, Blood Feast or whatever, Herschel Gordon-Lewis. Finally had a chance to watch that. I'm going to be doing a bit of a crazy review on that crazy film for Dread Media, along with uh, sharing my thoughts on the just-released film Us. going to pop up over there. Uh, you know which film I still haven't watched is The Limehouse Gollum. <laughs> <laughs> I did, it keeps getting bumped, real life, folks. So it's going to happen. It's I've, I've committed myself. I'm just not going to tell you when. <laughs> I, I will mention that name after it's out there, but it's going to happen, by God. it's The movie has made its way down. It's sitting next to the TV. So it's inching its way closer to the DVD player. Um, speaking of Joe Bob Briggs, as we record this, we're a week away from his return to Shudder in a new weekly series that'll go for two months, I think, roughly. It goes to May. Uh, double feature every week on Shudder which I'm assuming you can watch live and then hopefully be able to watch it after the fact, much like the previous three marathons that they've done. Come on, Joe Bob Briggs back on, on weekly television. Surprise double features every week. That's a no-brainer. Um, Shutter's not that expensive. It's $4.99. They've got a pretty good selection of films. They've thrown some older films from the 70s on the list. Good documentary on uh, black exploitation horror films that I haven't seen yet. It's on my list. They've got that Discovery of Witches series that actually Carla is really excited about. It's based on a series of books that she read. It's a British-produced television series that Shudder got the rights to. We saw the first episode on a preview back in January, and I kind of liked it. So 
we're going to be watching that as well. Check out Joe Bob Briggs on Shutter, and uh, you can find all of my thoughts and reviews on my websites, kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. What about you? Well, all I'm going to mention at ClassicHorrors.club is the Hump Day headlines. You mentioned that earlier. Every Wednesday, the Hump Day, we've talked about this before. You you watch any number of classic horror movies, the headline comes spinning at you from the screen of just kind of recapping what happened or moving the plot forward to some plot point. So I, I got the idea of taking screenshots of those, putting them out there, see if people can guess. Well, after 30 or so, I've kind of run out. (laughs) So we're on a hiatus, and I'm actually, on the weeks that it's not running, I'm going to be doing a poll on Twitter and Facebook just to ask, kind of get some guidance. You know, number one, do you like it? Do Do you want it to continue? Now, not a lot of people play, and I don't know if it's because they're too hard. When I do, though... Revenge of the Creature and the headline I show has Gilman in it and nobody guesses, Richard. I looked at uh, it and I swear. <laughs> you know, I wonder if it's worth it. And I, I don't do it because I want it to be worth it to other people. I do it because I like it and that's the kind of thing I'd like to see. But, you know, if, if no one knows what it is or it is watching it, you know, I'll, I'll do something else creative and try that. I mean, anyway, uh, just wanted to mention that if you don't know what the the hump day headline is that's what it is maybe give us a little feedback uh if you don't mind however you can reach me on on what your feelings are about that maybe they're too hard maybe they're too easy i don't know that's that i think i think that's it i'm pretty talked out i'm talked out i'm I'm parched and and, (laughs) our glasses are empty our glasses are empty uh we should talk about what's coming up next month yes Richard, we are super excited for Godzilla King of the Monsters that comes out on May 31st. So to get ready for that, we are going to watch three of the original movies featuring the co-stars of Godzilla King of the Monsters. That means we are going to watch the original Rodan from 1956, the original Mothra from 1961, and the original Ghidorah, the three-headed monster from 1964. I cannot wait. Let's just close by reminding everyone that you can call in for feedback at 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. I also want to make my regular plea to please give us a rating on iTunes. Richard, I looked this time and we have doubled our number of ratings. Unfortunately, that number is four. But nevertheless, that's double from two. But I know Steve Turek, Jonathan Angarola... Our people on the Facebook group page, come on, guys, just go give us a rating. I think there's some magic threshold that will like put this out there where more people can discover us. So really would appreciate if you can do that. Just pop on over to iTunes, look us up, and give us a rating. Hopefully a good one, but be honest. Yeah, offer up the feedback, as we've said before. Let us know what we're doing. Uh, are we doing okay? Is there suggestions? Yeah, let us know. Let us know what uh, what we're doing good and what you want us to change. For now, we are going to leave you with another song from the soundtrack to The Omen by Jerry Goldsmith. This is probably the theme you're familiar with. It's called Ave Satani, Avoid the Antichrist. We'll see you next time. <laughs> 